0: No jumper, coolest podcast in the world. Facto. And today I'm in here with a legendary hip hop entity. The other white meat. Seen it all, done it all. Facto. <laughs> DJ Search is in the building. Oh, MC Search. It's okay. <laughs> Fuck, <laughs> did I really just do that? That's okay. I, I smell too much Weed with
2: No, no. That's, you know what? I, uh, oh. I actually have a line in my new record. I said, fake fans called me DJ Search when MC in Dallas called me MC Self. So that I'm, it I'm happens in the all the fake fan time. category. Well, well listen, and, and there's nothing wrong with it because I was going to restart the interview, but then you just so no, smoothly wrote no, no, through I, that. Can I tell you something? First of all, I love what you do, and I love that you love new shit. Yeah. And I also love a lot of new shit. So it doesn't bother me when people who are younger and then were not even born when I was making music.
0: That's pretty egregious, call me,
2: though. DJ certain, nah, stop. That's pretty bad. Stop, stop it. It's not. I don't have an ego about that shit. Mm. I really don't, and I don't. I hope you don't are not you know in a headspace of any kind that I'm like, oh shit, that's like. I'm you just know. gonna blame but, hell hell row. Yeah, and and some hella good weed. It seems like some <laughs> hella good weed. Do you know where we are right now? That's all I want to know. Are we good right now with geolocation? We're in the No Jumper Studio. Okay, we don't have to geotraffic, and we don't have to geotarget you right now to find out where we're at. With MC Search. Okay, good. There it is. MC Search is actually my name. That's facto. Right. That's a good look, Adam. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me, man. Having my old ass on your show. I really appreciate that. No. it's amazing.
0: I I, I truly appreciate this opportunity more than you could ever know. Thank you. Laura. She just had the awe in the background.
2: How how you doing? I'm I I gotta tell you something. If I was any better, I'd be twins. Really? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Life is so so good. Um, doing what I love to do, um, having the ability to kind of create my own narrative at this point in my life. Mm. Having the ability to say no to ha- to have the ability to tell people fuck you no. And I don't say fuck you no, I just like to say Eh, nah, thanks. Mm. Wish you the best in your future endeavors, but that doesn't work for me. Right. You know, um, which is why I give you so much credit and why I give so many of you guys so much credit now because you have the ability to self manifest your, your entire career so that you can say no. Right. Because when I was your age, I, I couldn't say no. Mm. There was no no. There was, yes, how high? Where do you need me to be? You know, it was, it, there was no no. Right. Um, so the beautiful part of this liquid commerce that we live in right now is that you have the ability to say, fuck, me, fuck, you know. Right. You know, so kudos to you. Kudos to what you've built. And I'm trying to follow in your footsteps what really? I'm doing with the Timeless Podcast Company and what I'm trying to create in my podcast space emulates what you're trying to do. Well, so I'm, thank you
0: for doing it. it. It's interesting you say that because I'm. Just, that makes me immediately think of, like, I was just interviewing Steve Rifkin. And we're talking about, like, what he's trying to do in his career right now. And it's basically, like, a lot of people, like yourself, where you grew up having to work within the system. And now you want to just go independent and create your own thing because it's, like, so much less essential to have these big conglomerates uh operating and running your career it's like a lot easier to just sort of do something smaller that can more accurately represent your vision right
2: yeah i mean it's it's about the strongest are not the the most strong it's the, the most flexible mm. you know those are the people who survive and to be flexible you have to be mobile you have to be lean you have to have not the big brick and mortar not the big location not the heavy real estate you need to be able to say you know what I need to pivot and I need to pivot in a small period of time for a company like Rifkin, who I used to consult back in the day. Like Mm -hmm. I used to consult loud way back in the day, again, way before you were born. Um, the pivot, 83 for that. Oh yeah. Way Way before that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, but the pivot bro for a Rifkin to pivot his real estate, to pivot where he was renting, to move it from one position to the next, that's what she said, by the way. Um, <laughs> it was monumentally challenging to do that. Today, in today's e-commerce and today's you know liquid economy, you can pivot in forty-eight hours. You know, you can create a, a situation where, besides you know a beautiful studio, I think it's fairly safe to say that if you didn't like the rental space here, you can move this in a week. Oh yeah, it's it's not. You're not so landlocked anymore, right? Like Mm. the the commerce that you have is your brand. The commerce that you have is the integrity and the stories that you tell. And the way that you continually move the narrative forward with how you tell your stories and who you tell them to. Mm. And if you start to make other stuff like the fucking Pongo Bongo stick or the weed or the water. Um, by the way, no jump of water, dopest shit ever. Wettest water uh, in the world. Wettest, so wet, so wavy, crazy. Um, <laughs> you are able to do that in this great ethos of, of you know, this e-commerce system, whether it's social media or not. You know, for me, the next step is, well, why do I need an IG? Why do I need a TikTok? W- when can I create the mobile for myself? And Mm -hmm. and when you build that, I'm not there. You might be closer, Talib Kwali might be closer, but when you start thinking about like, okay, have I really read the terms of agreement with IG? Because they own all my shit. Did I really read the terms of agreement with TikTok because they own my shit? Like when you start looking at it from that perspective, you might want to say, okay, do I create my own TikTok for me, Mm. but then how do I grab that audience,
0: right? (laughs) I don't even think it's worth thinking about too much because breaking into the fucking social media world is one of the most difficult things you could take on. The network effect is like what it's all about. It's like, you know, if, you, if everybody's on the platform, nobody wants to go to another platform. So to create your own social media is about the most outlandish thing you could take on. So, yeah, I'm definitely not taking that on. No, I mean, just and though. you
2: use it as promotion. Right so you use it as promotion you say okay fuck it i'm going to give them 30 seconds of content i'm going to give them great content cuz it's going to drag people in yeah, yeah, yeah. so you use it as promotional a promotional vehicle but just know on the other side of it that they are accumulating wealth based on content that you're giving them
0: i mean it's all all these platforms are just ways to seize up a little bit of each person's attention. You know, it's an attention economy. If you could be Barstool Sports and you have a a customer who spends four hours a day looking at your fucking website or listening to your podcast, etc., then you have created a massive amount of ability to sell advertisement to that person. And then when you look at other platforms, when you look at TikTok, and you look at Twitter, Instagram, or whatever, even if you are just reminding people to go watch your content on a platform where you have it monetized, you know it's still just all about being able to capture that that little tiny sliver of a person's attention and that's what every media company and in turn everybody has become a media company you know it's like mm-hmm. any single person who's just like updating their Instagram story all day to their 2,000 followers I mean they're basically just doing self-promo for the limited audience that they have and In that way, like we're all just operating in that same attention economy.
2: Yeah. And for you, like when you see like repeats or when you see people, you know, show the 30 seconds at a Black China interview, which I think lasted that (laughs) long, or when they show like the Aaron Carter interview, like there's got to be a sense of accomplishment for you because you know you've not only generated content for yourself and created self interest, Mm. but you also created content for everybody else to go. Oh shit, like I didn't know Aaron Carter was fucking that thugged out. Like I didn't know mm. Black China was that sensitive about shit. Like I didn't know blank. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And that blank, that space that you live in, that's the reason why people fuck with you because they don't know what that blank's gonna be. Mm. They don't know who's gonna sit at this desk. They don't know who earned this chair. And they don't know what that vacuum that is gonna, you're gonna create based on what you talk about.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. Like, we interviewed that girl, and she talked about sucking off seven basketball players in a row. Right. And, I mean, a couple of days later, the clip on Twitter, like, you know, 30 seconds of her talking about it, just ended up on Twitter with probably 15 million views right. from the clip. And that, that is always a weird feeling because it's, like, it's not viral from my social media account. Right. It's not viral. I'm not making any money <laughs> off it. But somehow but I feel you? deeply but, accomplished.
2: Right. No, but, are, but ultimately, are you? Because then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, what is he going to say next? It reminds me of the, the Howard Stern movie, Private Parts, right? Mm. They, they went out and they said, uh, the average fan who loves Howard Stern listens for uh, 90 minutes. Right. The number one answer is, what is he going to say next? People that hate Howard Stern listen for four hours. Mm. Reason? What is he going to say next? Right. You know what I'm saying. So while you're saying you're not making money, you exist because of that 15 million. Yeah. Because of that blank. That was I'm talking about that ethos. That's like, oh shit, what the fuck is Adam going to have next. Who like who is he going to have on next? And what are they going to say next? You know. Those
0: those moments really define your career. As unfortunate as it is, it's like yeah, your deep three hour conversations that mean the world to you and in which you like really felt like your mind opened and you felt like it was the most enlightened right, conversation right. you ever had. That's great for your diehard fans. Right but it's definitely the guy passing out and smacking his forehead on the wall that is like the that, one that gets- cuz that's what has like the waiter in Hawaii saying like oh my god i just saw that guy smack <laughs> his face on the wall like and and that's what it is to to have a big platform or to be doing right. something that a lot of people know about is it's not about having 5 million hardcore fans it's about Those really epic moments, like like how many people listen to every word of every Charlemagne interview, versus how many people remember that time that he roasted so and so, or that Birdman ran up on him. You know, the the
2: the the two things that I think about when you're talking about all of this is thing one, when you talked about the the girl who sucked the seven dicks. Of all of the the posts that I saw, there was one that said, "I wonder what her father must think at this point, right?" Oh, that's the so one, many of those, right, yeah. right? So that's the one that c- captures. I, that I thought about in my head, and then the other one is this crate challenge. Like my man, oh, man. posted some shit. It's like, where are these motherfuckers getting all these crates from? Like that's, you know, like that's. Those are the things to me that like mean the most. Like again, I am far from a dude that has a shit ton of followers on fucking you know Instagram, like. I, was, I just did an interview with Gata. who, by the way, you did an amazing interview. But sure, I, told, Gator. I, shared, I shared with Gata that Dave is the reason that my show is not on TV. You know, at the same time that Dave was pitching his show for FX, I had a, I had a deal. They called Me Search was going to be a TV show about this white rapper in Queens who was coming up who was the Forrest Gump of hip-hop in the 80s. Oh. And my show got dropped. I don't, no, no tea, no shade like it because is what it is. Because of Dave? Yeah, because of Dave. Because they thought Dave was just better and similar? And he is because I got 40,000 followers. He's got 40 million. So mm-hmm. on, the, on the level of that, it's like, yo, I don't, we don't give a fuck about a search. He got Scooter Braun. He got fucking 40 million followers. Mm-hmm. This shit makes sense. And let's be really fucking clear. That show's fucking amazing. Like yeah. I would never have been able to make a show as good as that. Like Dave's show... By far, is the be- it's, it's the Seinfeld of hip-hop. Yeah. Like, it's just a fucking amazing show. Yeah. And I told Gator that when I did my interview on Search Says on my podcast. And, again, I, what he has done in the medium of television is the same thing that I think that he's done in terms of the medium of making music. Like, he's just created a lane that is uniquely his, right? Mm. And even though my lane was very uniquely mine before you were born it's still one of those things where it's like, so what, who cares? And I'm okay with that. Like, I think there's a lot of like curmudgeon OGs that are like, ah, you know, y'all motherfuckers don't realize how hard it was. Yo, fuck all that. Like, if I'm not flexible enough to like recognize that I need to continue to create relevancy, not even for myself as a brand, but relevancy for the stories that I was a witness to and stories that I was a part of, it's not about me. Mm. It's about the things that I was around. Like, so doing the podcast on Big Daddy Kane, right? Like our first Did I Ever Tell You The One About podcast. Right. Did I Ever Tell You The One About Big Daddy Kane. Dude, we spent two years meeting with eardrum companies. And, you know, and when I say eardrum, I'm talking ear doctors about how the inner ear hear sound. Like we met with all these fucking companies about how the drivers work in fucking headphones. We were thinking about immersive sound design three years ago, way Mm -hmm. before fucking Apple now was doing commercials about that shit, right? We were meeting with Dolby Atmos, so our entire first season of Big Daddy Kane is all immersive sound design. Mm We he's talking about growing up on Gates Avenue and going to fucking play ball. We went, we sent a sound team to fucking record that fucking park. So that's how it felt. Mm. Whether you fucking feel that shit or not is on you, but that's what we did, And now doing the one, you know, the podcast on Doom, you know, uh, the identity of that is not about, like, my relationship with MF Doom. It's my relationship with Daniel Dumoulay, who I grew up with in Long Beach, who before any of y'all knew Doom, the mad villain. And he was Daniel Dumoulay, him and his brother. He's the reason I had a high top fade. He's the reason I had third base cut in the back of my head. You know, he's the he's the reason that when I got on, I had a purpose. So when I was like, okay, when I get on, y'all get on. You know, when GYP was that, was, that was my mission after third base, like the back of the third base album is in my man's basement in, in Long Beach. You know what I'm saying? So telling those stories and being about that part of the culture for me, it's not about me. I don't have to be a curmudgeon and worry about, oh fuck, I only got 40,000. I don't give a fuck how many fucking followers I have. Right. It's irrelevant. So when Dave did his his thing, I was so happy to see someone be able to tell their story based on what they built today. Mm. And it just makes me say that, you know, okay, I have to be able to tell my stories. I have to figure out a way to share my experiences without being egocentric and being self-centered.
0: Right. Yeah. When did that, you know, because we talk about every person becoming a media company, you know, you've taken on a lot more there by just deciding that you wanted to go in the you know the the path of doing podcasts about all these different people that you've been around and stuff like when did that sort of uh switch get flipped in your head that you could really tell some amazing stories through this medium and did you think about doing like you know documentaries like you know i was talking to a uh, big you about him choosing to do um like all this tv stuff and everything it occurred to me that like he could have done a podcast. He could have done a series of TikToks. You know, there there's so many different ways that you could tell these stories. Like, what made you land on deciding to do these sort of like fully fleshed out uh, immersive podcasts?
2: So it wasn't just one thing, mm. right? It, it goes back to what I'm saying. It's not only it's not the strong who survives. It's the flexible. We started a media company, mm-hmm. um, and that identity was: we'll do documentaries, we'll do films, we'll do whatever. We'll go wherever we, we fit. Um, but there was something interesting with for me about six years ago in the podcast space where I just didn't see my stories and the stories that I was around really being told in a way that I cared about. Mm. And I'm from that, right? Like, I didn't hear the storytellers um, doing it in a way that was compelling to me. Mm. And then, you know, Nori... About two years later, EFN and Nori did Drink Champs. And I was like, oh, good for Nori," Because mm. when I was taking Nori on the road, I was working his record. You know, I broke Super Thug. Like, I worked that record. And it was amazing that I would take him to radio stations and people would come to him after. And it wasn't the fans. It was the fucking program director saying, hey, was he interested in doing radio? Mm. Like, is he interested in doing the morning show? Like, he was such a great storyteller. People were so compelled by that. And that was what was happening to me when I was going on the road. People would come up to me, program directors, oh, are you interested in doing radio? And that's how I got started. I, I was the first non-African American to ever host WJLB's radio show, which was the most legendary urban station in the country. Mm. So it was always about storytelling. You know, It was always about telling those stories. And I had a program director tell me, "Like, you can only be MC Search and Third Base on The Morning Show for three months.
1: Mm.
2: It's going to get to a point where you're going to have to tell something else. You're going to have to say something else. There's only so many times you can talk about yourself mm. until you have to start telling other stories. And that was kind of the ethos of how I thought about it in creating a media company with my wife. So we just just totally went into it saying, we're going to be totally flexible. We're going to take every meeting. We're going to see where we land. And where we land the biggest was The Orchard. And and Brad, Naven, and those guys were like, yo, we're bullish on you. We want you to tell your story. We want you to be able to like share your experience and what you you know saw and heard and i said yeah but i I really need to do it in a way that's not being done Mm. um because the immersive sound design was always a part of it for me like you know our artists and not even just kane or the artists here you know but g rap and you know brand Nubian, like their stories haven't really been told in a way that i think they deserve Mm. right so in that space yeah, you can do it in a really cool way in documentary, and you can shoot the beautiful shots of the Bronx, and you can shoot Tats crew pieces and all of that. But how much doper is it to hear their voice and then match that voice with an amazing sound design that you don't even mm. expect, right? So I was like, that's that's kind of fucking dope, right? Um, and it's still the wild west because you know I'm sure Big U, the reason he did TV is there's money in TV. Mm. You know, and there's no money in podcasting yet. Nobody really understands how to monetize it, right? Like, audience is one part, CRM is another part. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds and fucking make people click out. Mm. But the way, you know, we think about podcasts is like, okay, how do we tell an amazing story? Like, how do we compel kids to listen to Big Daddy Kane and talk about him being a stick-up kid in Brooklyn? Mm. Well, we hit a click-click of a fucking gun behind somebody's head. You know, and have them tell their story from a narrative that's one-to-one, right? So that was really, really cool with me. And then, you know, that kind of expanded. Like, so I've been in recovery now 10 years, like I haven't used. So I was like, okay, well, it's got to be amazing people that have amazing stories about their recovery. Mm. So we're building this entire immersive sound design show called Breaking Anonymity, which debuts in September, September 22nd. We talked to Brandon Novak, you know, about his fucking recovery. Danny Boy from House of Pain, Royce of five 5'9", King Crooked. You know, we talked to these amazing people. Frank Gallagher, who's the fifth talking head. Like, people who are fucking amazing have these amazing stories about how they hit rock bottom. Danny Boy talking about having the biggest record in the world, living fucking under a, a fucking underpass. You know, but how does that sound? Like, when you're smoking good and you're in the car and then all of a sudden you fucking hear that story... Okay, it's one thing to hear the audio of it, but it, it's amazing to hear how we fucking built it, mm. you know. And sitting in Adobe Atmos Studio and fucking knowing, like, when you're in your car or when you're you got your headphones and the drivers are fucking sounding crazy, you're like, oh shit, the story is even better because of the immersive sound design. And that to me was just that was the linchpin, mm. and it wasn't even about money, bro. It wasn't uh, fuck money. It's not about money. Like I'm at a place in my career, thank goodness, where. I don't chase a dollar. I chase opportunity. Mm. You know, I tell young people all the time, chase opportunity, money will come. If you chase money, it always runs, Mm. you know? So that was always the impetus of like at least one part of it. And we'll have TV shows and we'll have documentaries and we'll have films. We'll have all that shit when it comes. But right now, my primary focus is breaking anonymity, MF Doom podcast and search set
0: because i just love telling stories when you were talking about the uh addiction based stuff what what was your advice like if, if you don't mind me asking
2: no i don't mind you asking at all it was marijuana oh really yeah we. and that was a tough one for you to break it wasn't that it was tough to break it was the challenges i had when i was high uh-huh. um and the challenges that i had when i was high was how i behaved um and when I when I got into recovery, I realized that my smoking was really just a way of me being afraid of dealing with my inner feelings. Mm. And then what I learned even deeper into that, bro, is that my smoking was really making me hide from my true addictions, which was lying, hustling, stealing, violence, anger, rage. Distemper, disagreement, just all the chaos, internal chaos that I, I carried with me all the time. So in working a program and working steps I was able to identify like, okay, these are the reasons I wake and bake. These are the reasons why I wanna fucking get high. These are the reasons why I instead of wanting to spend time with my wife and kids, why I wanna fucking go run and go hang out with my boys on the east side on grass shit in Detroit or I wanna go to LA and fucking hide out of my man's for a month, like so it was, it was the behaviors around it, right? Mm. Um, and, and, um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about my addiction. You know, some people say, oh, well, you know, you can't be a, an addict to weed. Well, what I say is this, it's not about whether you smoke or not. It's the behavior around it. Yeah. And for me, this addict, I can't behave normally if I get high. It's just, just not something that is a functioning part of who I am. I'm a much better human being. I'm much more balanced. I'm a better father, better husband, better human being without the drugs and without the alcohol. And I am just clearer, but also was able to get rid of a lot of shit I carried for a long time. Like what I realized, bro, is that like, when I was getting high, I was denying this like little five-year-old kid who was afraid of the world. Mm. who got beat by his mom and dad who was afraid to go into the hood who you know just all these things so i had to like talk to that little kid that was inside of me and say you know what it's okay you're 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 okay you don't have to be afraid anymore you don't have to be worried about the things that hurt you right you can come out of that now and um in this breaking anonymity podcast I find that there's a lot of similarities with a lot of people, whether it's Royce, who's from Detroit, totally, King Crooked, totally, you know, we, you, you talk to people who have so many different lives than you, mm. who aren't from New Hampshire, who aren't mm. from Far Rockaway, Queens. Mm. But the story's the same, that the addiction was really just masking what we were truly addicted to. And that's the amazing part of the story, and that's the amazing part of the, the podcast, is that people are allowed to elaborate on not only their bottom, but how they came up and what ultimately helped work for them in their life. And also, I just want to break the stigma. I think a lot of people are like, oh, that shit is like a fucking like cult, like motherfuckers, you know, that shit is a cult in it. You know, fuck all that. I have more fun with my dudes who don't get high than I ever did with my dudes that get high. Mm. Like, yo, they're just bananas. But My dudes are bananas. You know, and um, and also for me, I, I have a very strict men do recovery with men, women do recovery with women. Like, I don't. I just I like the fact that I can comrade with my guys. Right. You know, if you're a woman in recovery, you should find a woman in recovery to bond with. I'm not the one. Mm.
1: You
2: know, what I'm saying I'm married. I don't need to bond with another woman. I want to be around dudes who understand what it's like to be married, to have this, you know, disease of addiction, and, and work through it with other dudes.
0: Right. Is it tough for you to like go be in the studio when there's ten people smoking blunts these
2: days? Nah, I'm in here right now with dudes who are smoking weed. That shit don't bother me. Right. You know, the smell is the smell, and and the way I look at it, is if I had a cigar right now, I'd be smoking a cigar.
0: You know you'll what I'm still do that.
2: Yeah, of course, I love okay. cigars, but but it's di- like it's different. Like I don't smoke, I don't smoke cigarettes, right? And I have that <laughs> I have that argument with my homeboys all the time. I'm like, yo, you gave up alcohol, you gave up drugs, but you still smoking cigarettes. Cigarettes are ten times fucking worse, homie. Hmm. Like you got to get rid of that shit, you know. Um, but I smoke cigars because you don't inhale them, right? You know, it's a different. And there's there's really no accurate. I think it's less than 1% of people that have ever died of cancer from smoking cigars. Hmm. So I have like two humidors filled <laughs> fucking cigars at the crib.
0: Really? Yeah. Do you feel like that in some ways has like replaced that as your vice? Or you like No, a no. Guy? I'm,
2: no, no. I'm not a coffee guy. I can't do caffeine. Okay. I don't do caffeine. I was talking my, my uh, daughter's boyfriend, B, is here. I'm not going to blow up your
0: it's funny when people get sober, though, but then they become like the biggest, most Yo, epic cigarette dude, slash vape slash coffee people on earth. Ever. It's ever. Funny, yeah,
2: not. Yeah, no, nah, nah, I don't do any caffeine. I don't do any um, cigarettes. I smoke cigars maybe three times a month. Right. Twice a month. I don't really do it a lot. Um, I have a homeboy of mine. We, you know, we'll, we'll go play golf and I'll have a cigar. Or, um,. Sometimes I, I, start, I started a stupid ass page on my Instagram called Cigar Gang. Mm. And this dude sent me like a humidor filled with like Cubans. So every once in Sunday, I'll go live and just talk shit with my boys about whatever. Right. You know, and just do that. And, uh, you know, but no, I'm not, it's not an addiction. You know, I would never consider it an addiction. If my wife said to me one day, you know what, Michael, I don't want you smoking cigars anymore, I'll get rid of them. Right. Yeah.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, the MF Doom thing, man. Like, it, were you a he, fan? I was a fan, not like a hardcore fan, but you know, he always had a special place in like when I was deep in the BMX world for all throughout my twenties and stuff. Where he he was in so many videos so often that a lot of his songs are like anthems in the the bike riding world. So I was always like, you know, very aware of him and stuff. Microwave
2: um, Mayo is a big one. Right. I know a lot of guys used to ride to Microwave Mayo.
0: Oh yeah. Do you like? So what? I mean, he's such a, a mystery to most people. And you're somebody who actually knew him pretty well, which is, puts you in a very uh, rare position. And, and I feel like, you know, there's a weird thing that happens these days where when somebody dies or something epic happens, there's almost like this little, like, war for who's going to do the content about it. Right. There's already three, six, nine documentaries. And that was, like, very recent.
2: So I want to be, I wanna be very clear about something. Yeah. I knew Daniel Dummerley, right? And that was my friend since 14 years old. I knew Zev X, the guy who did Gasface, right? I knew KMD, which was the first deal I ever did as a production company. Mm. I knew Subrock, his brother. I knew Dimbaza, his younger brother. I didn't know Doom. I don't know MF Doom. So me doing this podcast, and with and, and with Jasmine, his his widow, and with the estate is me getting to know my friend mm. because you know one of the parts of my recovery was always about making amends and I always felt shitty about how our relationship kind of fell apart um and it's my fault and it's my fault because of my ego and it's my fault because you know I was attracted to other shiny things mm. and um I always thought you know I'll have the chance to make amends like he'll just be around you know and I'll just and we had a mutual close friend guy i went to high school with created the mask created you know the doom logo my man blake um keo his graffiti name is keo um so i always figured i'll call blake and we'll go to guiana and you know i'm make amends mm. um and it didn't happen and i was on clubhouse and i heard just blaze and guru mention it and i kind of fell apart mm. you know and um you know, after I grieved, I was like, you know, I want to have the opportunity to tell the story. So, um, you know, we reached out to Sadiq from Ramseys, who's managing the estate with Jasmine. And we said, well, you know, we want to do this podcast. And, you know, I am I feel very blessed and thankful that Jasmine gave me the honor of doing it. Mm. Because it's it's my way of reaching out to, you know, guys that I know forever. Yasin Bey, Talib Kwali, you know, Mad Lib, Egon, you know. All those dudes and be like, yo, tell me about Doom. Mm. What did I miss? Cotty, Curious George, CM, Fam, like all those guys. What did I miss? And a lot of it I missed because, you know, I couldn't be around people who were using. Mm. So, you know, you got to stay away from people, places and things. But the other part of it was like we were just in different places, Mm. you know. So, you know, this podcast is my way of not only telling the story for fans, but it's really my way of you know, having some kind of closure.
0: Right. You fell out with him, like, a long time ago? A long time. A okay. long time ago.
2: Right after his brother Subrock died. And it wasn't a fallout. I wouldn't say that. It was just a, it just, a separation. It's we so never easy had to beef. stop
0: fucking with people when you are in the music industry and there's a new person to deal with every day and there's five million different artists who are hot every year. I mean, it's, it's just easy to fall out of touch with people that you might have had something significant with at one point.
2: Yeah, and it was also... You know, again, I had OC, so I was working on Word Life. I had Nas. I was working on Illmatic. You know, I was working on, you know, being an executive at Wild Pitch. I was working with The Coup on Fat Cat's Bigger Fish. I was, you know, just met Mark Echos, so who we were about to build Echo Unlimited Clothing. Like, I just I met Ill Bill. We were going to build nonfiction and started that group. Like, I had fucking things. My daughter, My daughter was just born. You know, I just, life happened, you know, and it was a pivot. And, you know, it's easy to say it was a pivot, but it's also easy to say I probably tossed him to the side. Mm. And that's not how it felt, but that's probably how it looked. And um, I also felt like he made a choice and he chose to roll with people who weren't fucking with me. So I wasn't fucking with them. Mm. Um, But I also know that that was not how he felt at the end. You know, and that's not how we felt about each other at the end. Mm. So it's now my responsibility to kind of not only tell people an amazing story about my friend, but um, tell a story about somebody who was a, a mystery to a lot of people, you know, and to properly tell a story in a way that, you know, has amazing sound design that isn't flat and isn't just, you know, some shit that, you know, is just corny, mm. you know?
0: like doing that is the thing that i don't get to do as a result of uh, doing such a prolific amount of content and just sitting down with people for hours and hours and hours every day is that that feeling of really getting to dig in on one topic document the fuck out of it you know talk to everyone who knew the person really paint the picture of the person like in a lot of ways I don't think I could do that, but I'm like really envious of people who have the temperament to sort of make that kind of content where you really go out of your way to fully document a person and have conversations with all the side characters instead of just sort of like producing YouTube content over and over. So I'm very much like in awe of uh, anyone doing that kind of content.
2: Separate from what you just said about the side people, I want to just say to you that I disagree wholeheartedly because you have single-handedly, in a lot of ways, done an amazing job of chronicling this era of hip hop mm. and doing it in a way that's personable, doing it in a way that gave people a human touch. And I really gotta give you your flowers, bro, because I, I wholeheartedly disagree with you. Again, side people aside, like I get that, but I don't think there's anybody better That has chronicled this genre's artist than you. I
0: appreciate that. I mean, that's
2: facto. Like, that's not capo, that's facto. Like, you fucking, like, hearing the Tekka interview, hearing the little TJ interview, like, you put me up on a lot of artists that I might have fucked with a little bit. Mm. Cause I'm still like, I know, you know, I'm an OG, or like Bun B says, I'm the triple white OG, but I still fuck with. Like, I'm fucking with Keen Streets right now. I'm fucking with Rockaway Rome. I'm fucking with Blanc Lafina. I'm fucking with Bobby J from Rockaway. I'm fucking with you know, a lot OT The Real. I'm fucking with a lot of young artists, man. Like, I fuck with them. Like, I listen hard body. You know, it's not about my age, and it's not about where I come from. Like, I love this music. And I also find, I love to find creators that can put me up on shit that... Maybe I'm not up on. Mm. You're one of those people.
0: No, I appreciate that, but it's a very different thing, you know. Like, yeah, sitting I'm not down, saying it's different. Having a conversation for two hours with somebody versus somebody who has. 10 2 two-hour conversations, and then pulls the best, most essential little morsels, and then narrates it, yeah. and just really ties it all together into this beautiful thing. I mean, it's just it's it's very different, and I feel like me having done this for so long, it would be very difficult for me to do it. And I've thought that there there is a person in my life who lost their life that I thought about doing a documentary on. And really thought about it, but it's so hard for me to get my brain to switch over into the mode of
1: Got your happy price, price
0: line.
2: Who is the one person?
0: Well, it's actually this friend of mine, Gabe Brooks, who was like a, a crip from LA, who was also like a BMX pro. And he was, had like a really incredible life, and then he uh, got murdered. And uh, I feel like I could tell his story in such like an intense way. But it's also like, I don't know, it's just very hard to like carve out the time that I would need to do that when I'm also doing some. I can
2: see those. the hurt in your face and how how much he meant to you when you just mentioned him. So I can imagine that that story would be an important one for you to tell. And it would be something that would take a lot of time, a lot of effort Mm. and a lot of integrity. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm so proud about is Big Daddy Kane could have told his story on a hundred fucking platforms, bro. Mm. He could have told his story a hundred different ways. He chose me and my wife. He chose timeless podcast because he knew that we would give him the ability to tell it the way he wanted to tell it and that he at the end of the day would be proud of it mm. and yo man we're the first music podcast in the history of apple to premiere and debut all nine episodes top five. Oh wow. and it was drink champs you million dollars worth of game and him really fucking nine weeks bro wow facto you know and um that's the kind of thing that, you know, I'm really proud of. And my voice isn't all on it and, and, and it can't tell him this story. Mm. Talking about, you know, the reason that his father went to Brooklyn was he drove a bus. And the bus company didn't want to pay him. Mm. So he wound up breaking in and taking his pay. Not more than he was owed. And they went looking for him. And they were going to hang him. So his mother put him on a Greyhound and him, sent him to Brooklyn. Oh, wow. So can you imagine hearing that story and just hearing it, but not hearing the bus and the fucking cash register and the glass breaking and the fucking clan outside the door? So that's how we told the story. And that's his story. It's not mine. And the other thing, bro, and I, I just and I want you to know this. I haven't shared this with a lot of people. He owns that. We, we don't... My company doesn't own it. We did a long-term licensing deal with him. I'm not going to be a fucking cult- culture vulture like a lot of these motherfuckers in these streets. And I think you and I both know who the fuck I'm talking about. Mm. I'm not owning anybody's story. That's his story. He gave me the blessing to tell his story. He gets to keep his story. I'll, I'll make his story sound sexy as fuck. But at the end of 15 years, either we renew the, the lease or... He goes he moves he moves on with it is that challenging to make that work from a business perspective no, huh? not at all because it gives me a fucking timeline to make money okay it actually put it's actually better for all parties because I know whatever the budget was now I have 15 years to make as much money as possible for him and myself because uh-huh. we're partners so now I gotta push the envelope so we went from having whatever we had the first time the show went out to having Hewlett Packet and GM as, as sponsors alright so whatever money gets made we split it 50-50 and at 15 years God willing he's still alive I'm still alive we get to talk about it Right. but what I'm not gonna do is I'm not gonna take these OG stories monetize it and not give him an opportunity to get that shit back that's some culture vulture shit fuck that you know what I'm saying Like you can't be fucking taking OG stories and not giving the option to give it back. You can build an empire. I don't give a fuck how big your empire is, but that's like the old school music business. Like give the artists the opportunity to get their stories back. Mm. And there's culture vultures that fucking did this and shit on motherfuckers, you know? It's just not right. So, we're not going to build a company like that. It's just not part of our ethos.
0: Cause, well, because you own like a few artists publishing, right? Or no. a significant part of, or like nope. at least people nope. believe that about you?
2: No. So, we're going we're to clear that up. So, what you're referring to is Jay Z saying, I know right. who I pay God Searchlight Publishing. Right. And there's a, a rumor out there that I own Nas's Publishing. Right. That's not true. Okay. I don't own a penny of Nasa's Publishing. Right. I administer Nas's publishing. And Mm -hmm. what that means is Nas owns his publishing. I have a 5% piece. And I sign off on every time somebody wants to use Nas's publishing. Right. And
0: that's it. So this isn't like a traditional style of publishing deal that people get signed to, that you signed to back in the day? No. Okay.
2: Not at all. I have another publishing company called Searchlight Publishing so we have, like, Bodie James, who's doing all the Griselda shit. That's right. my man for 100 and he years. And him a while back, yeah. Yeah, he's a great dude. Great dude. That's a more traditional publishing deal, which is a 50-50 co-pub. Right. However, with his deal, he's allowed to do whatever the fuck he wants. Like, we don't chase him for his publishing. Like, the record he did with Alchemist, uh-huh. you won't see published by, you know, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Go do your thing. I'm very, like, anti, like... I don't know what even you'd call it, but anti-establishment when it comes to structure, right? You know the the ability to tell the story.
0: Grab me that coffee. Sorry, I forgot to grab it after I made
2: it. Okay.
0: No, you can keep going. Okay.
2: Um, No, the ability to allow an artist to tell a story without having to, you know, think about counting pennies and dimes is just corny to me.
0: Right. Yeah. How do you feel about uh, just a switch off topic a little bit, but like, how do you feel about how crazy the reception has been for the new Nas album? And how do you feel about it on a personal level?
2: I'm so happy for him. Right. I'm so fucking happy for him. I mean, look, Illmatic should have won a Grammy. Mm. Let's just say, just, just keep it what it is. It took, you know, guys like Chris Lighty, may he rest in peace, and Kevin Lyles, and the industry to catch up to the guys who now propel the culture. And I propel the culture, propel the music business. Hmm. If you strip away hip hop from the big labels, they make nothing, nothing. Right. What is it, 87% of the music that's being generated profitably in the music business is hip hop? It's that high. I think, again, don't quote me, I'm not, but it's pretty high. Sometimes,
0: I mean, I, I, one time I was talking to a guy from a label, and he was trying to tell me about some rock band that they had signed, like the biggest <laughs> the biggest rock band that they had signed. And he was telling me the numbers that they sold, and it was just like, it was like 5% of what yo, you would think a, a decent rap dude first you, week would be.
2: Dude, it's fucking, it's, whoever that dude is, he's not living anywhere near reality. Like, you know, one of my favorite alt rock bands is this band, Pom Pom Squad. I fucking rep him to death. They're signed to City Slang Records. They're out of, the bands out of Brooklyn. They're out of Germany. I don't know. Maybe this band does twenty thousand streams a week. Mm. Fucking dope as fuck, right? But it's not for me. I, I love them because they just the lead singer. Is just she's a fucking ballsy female who just sings her ass off. Mm. Reminds me of like it's a mixture for me for like like because I grew up on the Smiths and the Cure and, mm. and all that stuff. So to me, she's very much a a combination of like the Smiths meet you know Courtney Love. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the shit I really enjoy. You know what I'm saying? That's the shit that, as an as a a music fan, Mm. that I love to discover and and just you know and find and find music. Um, But with um, hip hop, you know, you look at the numbers, man. You look at just the pure numbers. Mm. Spotify just announced that on average, they get 40,000 new songs a week. Right. How many of you think of those are fucking rap records, <sighs> right? Hmm. The biggest rap records in the world, Kid Leroy. I mean, like the biggest records in the world, you know, are rap records, hmm. you know, um, Drake, the first quarter alone does a billion streams on its catalog. Right. Tell me a rock band. That's, tell me one rock band that did a uh, fifty million streams. Right. I'd, I'll, I'll give them my fucking watch. You know what I mean? It, like, feel,
0: it feels like you're kind of doing a victory lap here. Like, look, hip-hop yeah, won. Yeah, yo, that's fucking right. Your motherfucking—that's
2: <laughs> a motherfucking facto, bro. Right. We fucking won. Like, yo, I'm. You're looking at the only white boy that was in the fucking parks back in the day, bro. The only other fucking white people were police. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, man, I'm really doing my victory lap. Because without hip hop, you wouldn't be here. There wouldn't, you know. So it is the victory lap, mm. and it deserves to be. And it, and whether it's Dave or Gator or fucking, you know, Drake or Kendrick or J. Cole or Boz or Nas, like the the victory lap deserves to be waved. Mm. That checkered flag needs to be as big as a fucking flag on the back of a fucking crack as Trump fucking truck. And um, the industry, music industry, needs to pay homage to that. Mm. And we're still in a situation, unfortunately, with all that money being made, you know, what won or just posted third quarter, 1.6 billion. The artists are only still getting 12%. Mm. You know, so, you know, with all the victory laps and all of that, there's still a long way to go for there to be equality. Mm. And it be you know a level of equality there, but you know, I think it's on its way. I think it's on its way. I think the artists will you know find other ways. One of the other um businesses I've I've started to get involved in is virtual events. Oh yeah, because you see the you know the amount of just pure commerce that can be made from mutual you know those virtual events. Mm. So we're going to be announcing some really cool partnerships in the next couple of months on that level. That's what's up. When you uh. When you talk about hip-hop. But, oh, but back to Nas. I got off the oh, publishing. Right, right. So, so the whole story about that, I know who I paid God. You were getting fucked then. I know who I paid God. Searchlight Publishing and Nas, that line. Right. I was the head of crossover promotion at Def Jam. Jay was about to release Reasonable Doubt. Right. He needed to clear a mouthful presidents to represent me off Illmatic. Mm. And he came to me, him. I think it was him, Dame or him, Damon Biggs. But they said, hey, can you help us clear the sample? And I said, yeah, give me a $2,500 check. I'll take it over to um, Zamba and I'll get the thing cleared. But we're going to take 25% of the publishing from that song Mm -hmm.
1: because
2: it's the chorus. So if you say it four times, we deserve 25%. So I always laugh that he can say all what he wants, but at least Nas owns a piece of Jay's biggest record. Right. And Jay can't say the same. Right. But no, I don't own Nas's publishing.
0: Right. Where we we were still talking about the Nas album though, right?
2: We were talking about King's Disease and we were talking about King's Disease too. And yes, I, I'm not surprised. I love that he's having this. I, I just love the album. I was listening to um, Nobody um, with a friend of mine, um, designer April Walker. That was uh, I was hanging out with a couple of days ago, and we were listening to Nobody. If you hear fucking Lauren Hill body that verse, right? I mean, it's just its just so, it's such a beautiful, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. That mm. album is just a beautiful thing. Right. You know?
0: Um, There's so many artists that sort of like, you know, are mega relevant during their run. And mm-hmm. then they just cease to be relevant, you know. Right. 10, 20 years later, of course, like hardly anyone is taken seriously at that point. When you listen to that Nas record, man, like he just sounds like, he sounds like a rapper that'll never get old that'll never like it like if he could keep up whatever the fuck he's doing right now and i know hip boy has a lot to do with it
2: but he just sounds like modern beyond belief yeah and he 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 i try to tell young artists it's not about what you say it's about the conviction Mm. you need to have the conviction in your voice i think most people can write a really powerful line It's just how you have the conviction to say it and make it believable, right? Because that's what makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. When they say something that is so relatable to you that you're like, man, I fucking felt that way yesterday. Mm. You know?
0: Um, And there's a lot of power, honestly, not that Nas is really this, but you could say the silliest thing as a rapper. You could say the dumbest brag, but if you just deliver it with that sincerity and that enthusiasm... It could just mean the world. Now, Nas is a guy who's like really saying some shit a lot of the time, you know? But yeah, yeah this is something for that.
2: You yeah, know? and Doom, it's Doom the same way. People, I mean, he said the most crazy, comical, comedic, graphic novel, but he said it in a way that was so fly mm. that it was like, damn, like, how does a motherfucker think like that? You know? How does a dude put words together like that, you know, Yasin Bey, like every month on YouTube is now doing a verse from Doom, Mm. you know? Um, It's just, you know, it's just this certain artists, even when you're listening to like, you know, a Juice World record, like the thing that was so amazing about Juice World, and the sad part about it is he even, he never even got to the apex of his emotional scope. Mm -hmm. Like he was just touching the surface of that. You know, Triple Extension, the same thing. Like, he was just about to get to the crux of where his emotional mm. epicenter may have been. And it gets cut short. And, you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but it's a fucking tragedy, man, that, like, these young boys have no respect for life. Oh, yeah, it's bad. You know, it, this? It's, it's, it's bad. And I don't know where the middle ground is. I don't know where the OGs are to stop that shit. But it's just...
0: It's crazy to me. Yeah, like, even just in New York alone, it's like unbelievable how much killing you've seen. And, oh, I mean, Chicago's obviously, like, by far the epicenter of it. But, yeah, like, the loss of respect for human life has been really astonishing. And, I mean, the way the X out is extremely indicative of that, you know? It's just purely, like, some dudes who wanted some money, wanted some valuables. So, they were ready to just pull the trigger on somebody over it in, like... You know, pop smoke the same thing. Pop smoke, same, pop, pop smoke ones particularly bad. I mean, they
2: showed up at this fucking guy's house. He was in the shower. And now, and even now, recently, with you know, with Nas losing his friend Mike, you know, right. Ice T, you know, the guy, they followed him to his house. Yeah. You know, like it's just, um, it's senseless and it's sad and and um, I don't know how it stops. I really don't. I'm I'm really. Alicia Silverstone Clueless on Mm. how to make it stop, you know, but um, I'm hoping somebody figures it out because I remember one time, and this was a long time ago, there was some, you know, bad blood in hip hop and Farrakhan brought a lot of the MCs together, Common and Ice Cube and Method Man. And he started talking to to the, the MCs about like how they were utilizing words and language. Right, like right. calling each other dog, which is backwards for God, because there was no there was no regard for them as men of of God. Right, you know what I'm saying? And like calling women ma because there was no like connection to the mother. And you know, it just he just broke shit down that like it was amazing. And these were young dudes that were like 26, 27, 28, but a lot of them had knowledge of self. Like a lot of them were God bodies, so a lot of them had knowledge of self. So there was they were being spoken to in a way that was like communicative. Like if you're, you know, like you said, you, you know, if you were talking about BMX to a bunch of BMX guys about how to not, you know, dismantle the culture of BMX riding, you could do a lot of analogies that would relate to those skaters and to those, and those riders. I don't know how to connect. Like I I don't know where to connect the dots is for a banger to talk to these kids and say it on a level that's like, look, is it a money thing? Like, could you, could you, I, I, don't, I just don't know, but the King Von thing, like right. like even with the King Von thing, the, the dude, I guess, either allegedly or not, the dude that was involved in that, like he left prison, they murked him right outside the jail. Like, mm. you're stifling the ability to rehabilitate and you're stifling the ability to reconcile and make amends and you don't know the power the pure power of what that could mean for the community you don't know what the fucking power could be if fucking guys are able to sit at the table and break bread for real right you lose that perspective and then the only thing that's left is well i fucking got rid of that shit so my life feels better i feel lighter or whatever i don't know what the conversation is because i'm not killing anybody but it's just fucking crazy to me bro it it, like Just
0: to put in perspective, when I was interviewing Hal Rell and J.R. Ryder earlier, and this is like, you know, their careers at being, you know, sort of starting maybe about 20 years ago or so, I said to him, I'm like, in your entire rap career, I don't think you guys ever mentioned your enemy or someone you had a beef with on the street in a song, unless it was somebody who was, you know, a prominent rapper. Then you would maybe say something about somebody, but there wasn't even that much of that. And I'm saying, like, Think about that, where, like, all the popular rappers in certain, you know, in a certain subsect of of hip-hop are basically, like, acknowledging these, like, street rivalries. And it must be kind of bizarre for you as somebody who is really there for, like, the formation of rap to see rap music becoming the venue for all that.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think about that Indian Red situation where the kid, Mm -hmm. you know, like... Kill a guy live on Instagram like no. are, are we real is that where we're fucking at right now? I've
0: seen so many people get shot on Instagram live. It's just like the most normal thing, like countless it's like almost like I'm not gonna click if I see another one on the on the feed because it's just sort of just sort of numb to it you know
2: that alone is so sad like but also there needs to be a level of awareness at some point man that we consciously, not disregard, but consciously have to figure out a way to regroup, right? To Mm -hmm. reset. But going back to your question, look, we have beef all the time, you know? But, you know, one of the things I laugh about is like, you know, our East Coast, West Coast beef before Pac and Biggie was, you know, MC Shan and and KRS-One, right? Mm -hmm. South Bronx versus, you know, uh, Queensbridge. And I got pictures, and not just me, but there's pictures of, like, okay, like, one radio station, WBLS in New York, that was all, you know, that was all MC Shan and Juice Crew, Mm -hmm. and Kiss FM was all, you know, BDP. But then we'd all be in the line quarter drinking, hanging out, you know, and the streets were talking, the streets were doing whatever, but dudes would do shows, and even to this day, KRS and Shan do shows together, Mm. Right. I don't know if it was because they were less or more gangster or less or more affiliated. So it was a different mindset. But fast forward, like we went to Nas album parties that like I'm watching Jungle and like having shootouts in the club, you know, Um, right after um, Street Teams went out, like we were at an album release party and like there's just, there's jungle and some other dudes, and there, there's just gunfire. Mm. Now I'm not saying I wasn't, you know, that's happened in the land quarter every fucking Friday. The original 50 Cent, the original Megatron, like all those dudes, Decepticons, they would pull me and be like, "Yo, I need you to come off the dance floor, search. It's about to go down," mm. you know. And um, I was always protected by those dudes, but like, it's not like it's not uncommon in hip hop to. to, to feel gunfire and feel that sense of like uneasiness and you know one of the very first battles I ever had when I when I served some duty he, he tried to kill me you know I was holding a big crown amp the amp cracked in my in my hand because guy was aiming a 25 at me you know what I'm saying and if it wasn't for that crown amp that I was carrying I'd be dead you know and that was he was mad because I was a white boy who smoked him in his project mm. you know um so it's not uncommon but that same dude we made peace I don't know when I don't know how but you know we made peace with it right you know um so I just you know my concern is that they're just not finding a way to make peace with this right
0: yeah it's just it's weird how how much rap kind of aggravates it where it's like people who wouldn't really have a reason to beef with each other now It's like the incentive is that they know that if they have a problem with somebody and they carry it out through music, that that content will be more compelling. I feel like that in and of itself is like a reason to have problems with people because they sort of inherently know that there's compelling content for the audience to come from that
2: yeah I mean even when you look at like the verses between dipset and and you know and um, and the locks
0: it's like the thing that seems almost impossible to get people to do, which is like pay attention to rappers who are in their 40s, is a- attained consistently through verses just by introducing the element of adversity
2: right and it was so funny because people felt that because the tension of these guys doing this on right. stage, like all of a sudden you had a hundred heads. Cause they're like, Oh, it's about to pop off. And they literally had to be like, yo, everything's cool. Like everybody get off the stage. This is all love. We knew we were going to get at each other. Like, yada, yada, yada. and it's funny. Cause I texted Jimmy, Jim Jones three days before the battle. I was like, dude, please watch the Jada kiss fabulous battle on versus they're strategic. You, you have more hits they're strategic, mm. they're gonna come at you strategic. And he and he sent me, he's like, No, 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 I got you, I got you. So I figured, okay, so Cam Jules, they're gonna, you know. And it's funny because on the hat I got, um, shout out to Far Rock Shop, you know, on the back of the hat, it, it's, it's stacks and it's and it's um, chinks. And I thought about it. I was talking to Ben Baller about it too, because he was in the audience, I was like, Man. It would have been so dope if Stack was on stage with Cam and those guys, like fucking Far Rock on the map. Like we would have fucking lost our minds. You know what I mean? Like I had just had hip surgery and I couldn't be at Madison Square Garden. I would have been in the front row. I would have been in the front row, but if Stacks was there, repping Far Rock away, repping Dipset, like, oh my God, man, I would have been losing my fucking mind, bro. Mm. You know, I would have been losing my mind. And um those are the things, like when I think about chinks, I listen to Welcome to JFK almost every day. Mm. Like I just that album to me and that whole riot squad, like what they could have been. You know what I'm saying? Like just it's just early on for me, oh five, oh six, oh seven, that whole loss of life, just it's just, you know. And it also it just makes me wonder, like, how is this dude Takashi still fucking alive, bro? <laughs> Like, how is a dude who fucking rats on Trayway? how the fuck, how the fuck are you alive, bro? Mm. Because that was the shit, like, when we were coming up, I mean, it's an all that, it's snitches get stitches. But it pivoted on the low, it was like, stitches get ditches, you know, snitches get ditches. Like, how is that fucking dude alive? Mm. You know, all these other young men are dying, this dude's running around the streets crazy, talking reckless, and he's alive,
0: it's a lot harder to kill a famous guy. <laughs> a lot more, okay, a lot guess, more attention guess, on him. I
2: guess so. I guess so. I, guess
0: I mean, so. If, like, think about it. If somebody's like, and, I,
2: and just so I'm clear, I really want to put this out there. I don't wish harm. Right. No, of course not. <laughs> I, want, I want him to have a, a long career. I want him to have a healthy career. Um, Preferably
0: I just, not as a rapper?
2: I mean, I think he's not a rapper now. I think he's an influencer. I think, mm. you know, I don't. I don't know a single song he's ever done. I just see him as an incredible personality. And he's created a way in his own ecosystem to be this huge personality. Right. But I don't consider him a rapper and I damn sure don't consider him an MC. Right. You know, but he's done an amazing job of creating a huge ecosystem around him that almost lives in a vacuum. Yeah. You know, where he's able to monetize, generate money, socialize, do these things and be incredibly protected. Yeah. God bless him. And and God bless his mother for not having to bury a son. And God bless him for continuing to take care of his family. So I don't wish any ill will on that dude. Like I don't know Homeboy. So I don't but it just where we came from, if you drop dime on a on a group as large as Treyway. In the five boroughs. Right. You know, we just I, just, come from a different place, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, but I still I, I feel like, you know, if you are tied to the sort of uh, the roots of rap or the street part of rap, I mean, the fact that he's been, like, basically ostracized from all corners of rap music aside from, like, a Nicki feature, I mean... If you if you do care about like you know certain moral standards and rap and all this kind of stuff, I mean, I would think that has to be a little heartening that like if you go through his Instagram comments, like you can't find a like a rapper. You'll see some Instagram influencers and such, but yeah, you know, I mean, hip hop has that, really kind of turned their back on
2: them. And you know, again, you're making an assumption that I'm checking his Instagram like that.
0: No, yeah, I mean, <laughs> feel free to not do that, but <laughs> and, if you and were, thank so. you, thank
2: you, because. That is my facto mm. right now. I, I'm not. He is not someone I follow on any social media. Right. You know. Um, who are you listening to right now? Because I, I I wanted to ask you who are your favorite. What are you checking for right now? Because I l- I would love to put you up on some shit, but I, I'm right. just you know. But I'm I really I think your ear is great.
0: It's funny because sometimes i'm so just caught in the cycle of you know doing five interviews a week and i gotta listen to those those rappers new albums and i gotta you know sort of stay in the loop i'm listening to old albums i'm listening to hell roll albums from you know forever ago
1: um
0: that a lot of times then i become sort of blind to the stuff that i'm not doing coverage on like you know Mm -hmm. clear time to listen to the nas album Mm -hmm. a bunch of times but i mean you know it's like i i don't sometimes I feel like I'm not really doing as good a job as I could be doing at really like listening to the shit that uh, I actually like, you know, like I'm less in touch with what I'm actually feeling these days.
2: But it's interesting that you just said, I'm not yeah. on my job because in the interview you did with, with Sway, you said, it's your passion, mm. It's your passion to listen to music. And now you're saying it's your job. And it's just, for me, it's just, I'm hearing, you know, obviously wordplay is a big thing for me, but I think there's a lot of, truth behind words Mm. and maybe you're not listening because you now see it as a job and not as a passion
0: well yeah it's like i have to do so much of the job part which is like you know oh there's a schedule boom there's these rappers i have to know about and i have to listen to their music that then like the rest of my time a lot of times i don't end up like dedicating to just listening to music for pleasure you know uh just because it's like there's only so much music i can really listen to and I, I wouldn't say that like the music is my passion i would say that the rappers are my passion in the sense of like having conversations with and exposing them like i like the music for sure but i can totally have like a great interview with somebody without giving a fuck about their music at all as long as i find their like character
2: like in- me. Like me like no, I, I'm a fan. You know, I've always like known
0: of your music. No, like, no, no. But kidding. to be honest, Dude, I did
2: self-deprecating Jewish I, I didn't neurotic I queen shit. Like right to now. get
0: ready for this, I watched the entire Vlad interview. I watched almost all of the uh, I really Johnson don't interview. ever
2: fucking do that again. Fuck no? Vlad. Oh, don't ever fucking do that again. Oh god. I'm not gonna engage with
0: that. No, don't
2: I mean I, it's just I'm saying he's a culture vulture and fuck him because okay. that entire interview happened because he lied to me. What, what do you mean? I was in the process of doing a GoFundMe for my book. Uh-huh. I was going to self-publish a book All right. and he had been bothering me for years to do an interview and he promised me that the link for the GoFundMe would be on the screen Okay. and he, he manipulated the truth because it was on the screen if you scroll down the words to the very fucking bottom description of my entire thing uh, there was a link on the bottom. Okay. And it didn't move the needle at all. Meanwhile, he's bragging about how he got the largest and the longest MC Search interview and went and talked to this one and this one and that one. And when I asked him for my content back, he said no. Oh, jeez. So So you guys fell out at that moment? I don't take his calls. His number's blocked in my phone. Oh, That's too bad. And it's not me. It's not just me. And, and listen, I always say this to people. My issue with somebody, obviously, is not your issue. And I'm sorry if that made you feel uncomfortable Mm, anyway because it could be your people and god bless you you might not have to you know whatever but for me you know for me it's more about um, just being honest Mm. and I don't think the dude's an honest dude and I think that you know when you're dishonest I think that shit is bullshit And when you come from where he comes from, you know, with Justo and the Justo Awards and coming from where he came from, the streets and watching the streets embrace him and him building something, he should have more ethics.
0: Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, as far as. But
2: I understand. And and listen, the watching that Vlad interview, you're going to learn a lot about me because I I shared a lot about myself because my intention was, oh, this is going to be a great avenue to reach a lot of people and hopefully raise the money I needed to tell my book. But now I have a deal and I have an agent, and, you know, I'm going to write my memoir in, a, in the right way. Right. Um, but you know, at that time, you know, I, and I tell people I do with Dave Chappelle all the time. I say, please, if, if you're a fan of mine at all, if you give a fuck about anything I've ever done, please don't watch that interview. Okay. Please don't watch it. Watch the drink champs one, watch with Nori. That's just as good. Please don't fucking watch that, that, that interview. Fair enough, you know. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh no, I, I was just saying. Um, and shout out to Vlad. <laughs> yeah. But well, one of the things that I loved about what you've done, at least, and it, maybe this was early on, and again because you've now gotten to a certain place in your career, right? You did talk to artists that you love. I mean, right. and, and you you, know, you said it on the Sway interview. You've said it on other interviews. You know, the the impetus of what you did is you spoke to artists that you love because. It was, A, you didn't feel like they were getting the shine that, that you mm. felt like. And it was because you fucking love these artists. Right. And it just, you know, again, it's just, it's, listen, it's with everything else. You get to a point, there's money to be made, there's a family to take care of, a beautiful daughter now, like, you know, so it becomes a job, right? Right. But my hope for you is that you never lose the passion of listening to the music. Oh, no. You know what I'm saying? Because that's the beautiful part about why you and I are sitting here. Right. Like, I'm going to jump in my car. My man, Keen Streets, just sent me, like, three new joints that he did with Jim. Like, I can't fucking wait to hear them shits. Bobby J from Rockaway just dropped Montauk. I can't wait to hear that shit. Blanc Lafina just dropped some hot shit. Like, I love, and I'm not involved with any of these artists. Like, they're not being distributed by me. I'm just a fucking fan. Like, I love music. And, you know, whether we distribute them or not, or whether we work with them or not, is irrelevant. OT to real, put out a fucking crazy-ass album. Like, I'm just a fan of the music. And if I get a chance to interview people, it's obviously still based on fandom, but it's just a different balance for me, I guess, at this point in my life. It's like, I don't do what I do for Search Says, and, and that because I'm trying to create an interviewer trying to create, I can still listen to shit, just be a fan. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, And also being able to tell stories is about like getting to know the artist through their music, right? Because they're being their most vulnerable in telling their stories through their music when you first get to know them. Mm.
0: You know, one thing I find interesting is that I very much like got into doing podcasts because I wanted to have conversations with rappers about their lives. And sometimes when I listen to rappers' music, it'll just really stand out to me that I could listen to like a rapper's whole project and feel like I have learned absolutely nothing
2: about their life. Right, because the imagination of what they want to aspire to versus where they come from. The dichotomy is wide as is, is a football field. Yeah.
0: Right. Or even especially like if you know basically like what circumstances they're coming from. It's like Right. You know, and, and sometimes I can listen to a whole rapper's interview and really feel like I haven't learned anything or even do an interview and like really actually try to make the person interesting. And it's just like sometimes the the ability to make popular music is like completely separated from the ability to be an actual engaging public figure.
2: Right. My wife will give me a pep talk before I go into every interview Uh and she'll say, be honest, be open and listen, right? So the question I want to ask you, obviously, because you started this before you got married. Does your wife give you any advice before you go into interviews today?
0: Technically I'm engaged, but uh, I'm sorry, yeah, it's all good. no because i mean to be honest a lot of weeks i'll be doing like nine fucking interviews for like an hour or two each right so it's like if anything in my head i i try to not talk about it before i'm doing it i try to like minimize you know i have to be prepared but i also try to like minimize the uh intensity because you know mm. in, in originally when i'd be going in to do an interview i'd be feeling like a fucking boxer like i'm like preparing for this right. this battle of words that i need to like hype myself up for and i think that like over time i've realized that the more relaxed with it i am the better that it can ultimately be because,
2: uh, like, were you surprised yeah. when Corrupt came at you the way he came at you? Because the question was a very, I thought, well, I wouldn't say benign, but it wasn't, as you framed it, spicy. It was right. not a spicy question. Mm. And his analogy of how he heard it versus the Tupac. Right. Were you, were you
0: shocked by that? I kind of, like had seen enough corrupt interviews to realize that he kind of likes to do this thing where he just, like, lets loose on the interviewer a little bit. Gotcha. He did it uh, to Vlad talking about that Kendrick bar. He did it to Charlemagne talking about, fuck, it's slipping my mind. But he, he always will do this thing in interviews where he gets sort of, like, intense and just sort of, like, mans up on the interviewer real quick. And then falls back. Yeah, and, like, always it's then pretty clear that, like, But it's weird because it doesn't feel fake. It actually feels like impassioned,
2: dude. I'll tell you a funny story. But
0: but but like with that one in particular, it was super obvious that he was like trying to get me to take the bait, and within moments, it was like he he was just laughing. He was like, it was obvious that like why 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 would we possibly be actually arguing (laughs) over like which rapper is the most important? It's like a very silly thing. But then also, uh. We edited it for the TikTok or the Instagram reel or whatever, and like you know, we cut the Instagram clip and titled it right. to make it seem like he was actually mad, and we sort of like removed the context in the TikTok and right. everything. So it does like it, it is kind of funny having so many people act to me as if it was like a really intense conflict. When if you actually watch it in the thing, it's no, no, no. Divine. That was the yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. I've actually never told anyone. I had a business partner who worked with Donald Trump, mm. um, real estate. Jeffrey Epstein. No. Okay. Thanks for connecting the Jews, though. Uh, No connection to the Jews, by the way. Sorry. Jewish New Yorkers. Keep it moving. Just a guess. Um, Yeah, just that's fine. But well played. Um, So he said that uh, when he would go into meetings with Trump, no matter what the meeting was, the table would be set, the conference table, and John Doe was across the table. Trump would come in. And the first thing Trump would come in is slam his hand on the table as loud, as loud as he could and say, this deal is bullshit. I don't give a fuck about this deal. This deal is bullshit. And when I come back, this thing better be fucking fixed. And, he'll, and he just stormed out and slammed the door. Trump would do this all the time. All the time. And then come back in and go, hey, how are you, Donald Trump? Let's... Uh, the craziest, most psychotic shit you've ever... W- he said it was the most psychotic shit he ever witnessed. And this guy became our fucking president. Wow. Like, can you imagine, like, if I walked into this interview and the first thing I said to you, never meeting you before is, you better fuck... And I'm, better- I'm gonna come back and you bet, You'd be like, yo, what the fuck is wrong with that yeah. asshole? Like you know, in fact, Laura, walk him out. Like I don't even want to fucking do the interview. Right. You know. Um th- And the other thing I wanted to share with you. But the those people two, are
0: coming to Trump like he's a fucking yeah, king,
2: king benefactor
0: Dude. who can who can make their wildest dreams and come true. Fucking, so he's he's very much in the position to do, do that. With that. And yeah. And
2: there's a fucking Florida fucking war chest for Governor DeSantis of a hundred and forty million dollars that these fucking Trump fanatics are fucking funding Mm. like it's crazy bro like crazy so the other thing I wanted to just tell you is I I had a little fun based on this TikTok thing recently with Fat Joe Mm. yesterday's price is not today's price yesterday's price is not today's price I'm not on TikTok like that I think I got like 200 followers like some stupid but I like TikTok because, I honestly, the reason I watch TikTok is for hip-hop shit, A. B, is I like woodworking. And I love these fucking tables mm. with the resin. Like, I'm trying to buy every fucking table because my wife and I are building a house in, in, in Florida. So I'm looking for, like, furniture and shit like that. Mm. And then the other reason is broadcast, boys. I fucking love those dudes. Like, I don't know if you're up on the broadcast, boys. What's up? Fucking Lucas and and Deuce Deuce. Yo, those two dudes are the funniest fucking two guys on TikTok. Funniest two dudes. Like, Lucas will do shit on, like, the fucking Playboy Life of 50 Cent, the fucking Criminal Life of this one. It's funny as fuck. And then Deuce Deuce does shit on sports. Okay. Like, the draft of 2007, Where Are They Now? Or my favorite one most recently is... (laughs) Regular motherfuckers who look like Jay-Z. He's like, oh, and here's the broke Jay-Z trying to fucking thirst trap some bitch on a beach. And here's the—those two dudes are hysterical. So I would suggest get up on them. So I did this thing with the split screen. Yesterday's price is not today's price. And I'm I'm like this. I'm like, so is yesterday's price today's price? And it's yesterday's price is not today's price. So is yesterday's price today's price? It blows up on my TikTok. I get like, you know, whatever amount, And I'm looking, <laughs> looking through the fucking people who are checking. And the, of all the things I see is this white guy who says, Ah, another white guy who's confused by the fact that a brother's trying to set the fucking tone for economy. You fucking ignorant devil. And I'm like, but you're white and you don't know that I know Fat Joe and you don't know this is a joke. So thanks for visiting. But the point I'm trying to make in all of that is, bro, is the obscenity, and it's truly obscenity, that people, like I said, the spiciness of the, of the interview, they're seeing things in bite size mm. scenarios and taking it to mean, you know, like you took the line from Jay-Z thinking that I own Nas's publishing. Just not true.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean that's how people consume information these days. Like we, we do the thing that you're used to the media doing to the, to you, you know, where if like you said something in an interview and there was a way to twist it and, and make it, Oh, search is a racist search as an asshole, whatever mm-hmm. the media would gladly do Dude, that to you at some they point. They did
2: that to me on clubhouse, fucking Van Lathan fucking What'd did you that. Say? And it wasn't what I said it is I went into a room on clubhouse that van was hosting with mouse Jones and they were talking about something and they asked me about my opinion. And I come from a place where where I was raised and how I was brought up, regardless if I was you know, a Jewish kid. The kids I grew up with, I recognized and saw that they believed and I believed in, in what they believed that black man is God on the planet Earth. Because I grew up with a lot of my friends, like my closest friends, bro, were from Redfern projects whose names were government names and became Lord Jamal Law, Understanding Mathematics, you know, Be Ourself. And like I would troop with them from Redfern to Mecca on 125th Street. So, And in my conversation in this room, I said, and in the same way, I understand that white people are visitors in hip hop. I also feel it's important for me to share that what we're doing on television with like love and hip hop and love and hip hop Miami is a fucking travesty to the culture. Mm. And these men and women oh no, 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 no. See you white man, you don't have the right.
0: You can't talk about love and hip hop.
2: You can't talk about you can't talk about black people on television. Mm. You don't have the right. And this dude, Mouse Jones, was every time I tried to say something, he was like, "Ah, oh, your voice is getting a little husky, homie. You might you might want to relax." Mm. And I'm like, "You don't even know me, first of all." And we're getting bully on on Clubhouse. And I was trying to simply hear the conversation, and I understand that the temperament is very sensitive in the marketplace. Right. And when I say marketplace I mean the world. Like I'm not talking about hip hop as a, you know, I'm talking about with everything that's going on. Right. And the attitude was I became the white punching bag. And at one point somebody said to me, "I need to know how official searches is. search is gold front hip hop, yes or no." <laughs> and I said no, and I said, "You know what? I think I'm going to give the my spot up for somebody else, so thank you for having me in here. Right, And I bounced. And I found out later through friends of mine that, you know, they were having side conversations, like, why is Search allowing himself to be fucking tagged like this and, like, fuck these dudes? And And it's very simple why I just stayed there. Because I feel like I'm the only one in a lot of times in these rooms that can handle the conversation. Right. Without... Losing my tempo without taking it personally Yeah Because I understand where it comes from I understand where the frustration comes from But I also understand that I'm entitled to my opinion Because I'm a human being First right. and foremost And I was a very much a part of the growth of this culture I might not have been so deep That I built Because that would be crazy But I was a part of, you know uh, An early iteration of what the culture became Mm -hmm. So I feel like I have an an opinion. And the next day I hit Van Latham and I'm like, yo, I appreciate you having me in in the room. And he hit me back. He goes, search. He goes, you got to just understand, man. Like we are scared. We're scared about what's going on. We're fearful of our lives. And I get it, man. I get it. You know, I've had situations with my children who are multicultural where You know, cops pulled guns on them in fucking gated communities. You know what I'm saying? So I get it. I can't relate to it because I'm a white man. I got pulled over coming here.
1: Mm.
2: I didn't get shot. You know, I didn't, you know, nothing bad happened to me. But easily it could have been fucking something else if I was black. You know, so I get it. But at the same time, I'm not gonna let somebody shit on me just because I'm the punching bag in a room. Attack the content
0: of the ideas, not the person, you know, if you want to have an intelligent debate. And I mean, to be honest, I feel very comfortable saying that. I think that there's very much a debate to be had about the validity of love and hip hop and how it sometimes like unfairly frames uh, their participants. Mm -hmm. I've had people say that to me because I've, you know, watched a little bit of it. But I've had people ask me, like, do you think that like it's actually like good for the black community, love and hip hop? And I'm not really willing to go with one way or another because I feel like it's so beloved by people that it obviously just satisfies some, some itch that right. people just want scratched.
2: Yeah, but you know what? I think about Mona Scott, who's the executive producer, and I think about, man, what would Chris Lighty say if he was alive? May he rest in peace. Because, you know, I don't know how Chris would feel about it. Mm. You know, Chris and I go back to when he was carrying crates for Red Alert in his wife maximum. Like, Chris and I would troop down I-95 to see his dad, who was a cop in Baltimore. Right. You know, like, I was family. It wasn't even a guy I knew in the industry. Like, he was, he was family. You know? And um, his death hit me hard. Like, it hit me hard. And I just wonder if even Mona Scott and Chris would be partners, if that was the route she went. Or I, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer.
0: But the thing about love and hip-hop is that all the things that you hate about it are basically what makes it a popular TV of show. Of course. It's it's you know? a soap opera. We wouldn't even be talking about it if it was tame and tasteful. No. And if people got to, you know, fairly promote listen, their music career. It's the career. same
2: reason people loved The White Rapper Show. Oh, man. You knew I was going to bring that up, huh? You know what I'm saying? It's the same. No, I didn't know. But, I mean, it's the same people. I got to pee real quick, but then let's definitely fuck talk you. about that. Yeah, Let I me tell, tell you. Fuck you. I'm leaving. I'm fucking le- hey, Listen. You don't fucking walk out of here on me, pal. You better come back and have all the answers.
0: So let me just paint the picture for you. Okay. It was 2004, and I was in my second year of college. I went to uh, UMass Lowell. I was living on campus for this one
2: year. Did you know a guy named Mark Williams played uh, football cornerback?
0: No. If you were to ask me that about literally anyone that I went to school, with, I would have to say no as well. so, okay, gotcha. I might have known him. Who knows.
2: But: Now he was my partner in Nouveau, my, uh, my liquor company. He went to Oh yeah, okay. D1. He grew up with the locks and he played UMass.
0: Oh, jeez, okay. But I, w- I didn't have a TV in my fucking dorm room, obviously, and, uh, you know, but you know, about once a week, on average, I would make it back to my parents' house to you know, check in and see what was going on. And every single week, I would make sure that I caught up on the white rapper show was literally the only TV show that I cared about at that point in my life. And I would, and I think it actually, maybe I think maybe at a certain point, it was the first time that I had ever downloaded an entire TV show off of a a torrenting website because I needed to see an episode. So uh, expeditiously found it unbelievably compelling at that point in my life. And I think, I think not even just because I was a white rap fan, incredible show. How did this come about? Please give me some inside information on how this all came together. The White Rapper Show. You know It's 7 o'clock. Kind I'm of sorry. Like, I got to go. This is the White Rapper Show.
2: I, I didn't know it was going to go this long. I'm so sorry. <sighs> um.
0: <laughs> we can go all night.
2: Pause. Get. That's what she said. Yeah. Instead of pause, can we do that? that's what she said? I, I'll go for an old school no homo. That's Or that's, ayo, yeah. Now that's a good one. Can I get a fist pump on that? Because I haven't heard yo since ayo. When you hear a whole room full of yeah. people do it, that's a-yo, when you know you said something yeah. gay. Yeah, yeah. Or pause, homie. Pause. That was an old one. I too. have
0: friends who just hang their head in shame at some of the such yeah. shit that I say. Yeah,
2: my wife. My wife does this one. She gives me this look. <laughs> I got a African American Puerto Rican. Wife for thirty three years out of Queens, and it's real simple. It's this look, and mm-hmm. then I know not only not to say it, but never say it again, no matter where. Mm. So um, I'm in Detroit doing radio, um, the first non-African American to host WJLB's morning show. Right. Super friendly with all the guys from Ego Trip, because they're all from Queens and they're all my friends.
0: Which at the time is a very relevant magazine slash. Media company?
2: No, it wasn't media yet. It was a magazine. Just a magazine. Okay. And Sasha Jenkins calls me and says, look, we're shooting a pilot. Um, I need you to come to New York. And I couldn't really get away from radio because I'm doing the morning show. But somehow I convinced my program director to allow me the week that I needed to do the morning show from... Powers from iHeart Station in New York and allow me to shoot this pilot. And I go to shoot the pilot, and it's me and Prince Paul, we're the host and the co host. And it's five rappers living in this fucked up house in Brooklyn. And we're judging them on three different things that they're doing. And they get split up into teams. And um, I remember calling my wife the first night and I said, Honey, this is about to be the fucking craziest show on television. Mm. And she said, "What's going on?" I said, "I can't tell you." They got me under fucking some crazy NDA. But when I come home, yo, Sasha and fucking YN, Elliot Wilson, I used to call him YN. Yo, I love that nickname, sh- by the way. I'm sorry.
0: I love that nickname. Yeah, I love that. It I'm, like, YN. I'm
2: like YN. Yo, they got the craziest show. This shit's about to be crazy. So I do the first. I do the pilot and the funny thing was during the pilot and this is something you didn't see on TV during the pilot when I'm about to give somebody the door the step off this dude just steps up and quits the, <laughs> the pilot thinking that it's actually the show mm. like you know what I quit goes outside and the cameras follow him and starts to freestyle about what kind of piece of shit I am <laughs> And I fucking go out there. And I'm like, yo, you want it? Like, we can go. Like, we can go head to head. He's like, nah, you had your time back in 90. We'll (laughs) battle on New Year's. You know, we'll make it a big event. I'm like, no, we'll battle right now. Hmm. And I just started ramen, whatever. And uh, three months later, four months later, I get fired from JLB. Um, I breached my contract. I did something that I'm not proud of. And uh, a month, three or four months later, I get a call that the show got picked up. And uh, we shot it in the summer in New York. And basically, that's how the show happened. Like, I, I would love to say, like, I had some kind of creative input in it. I had none. It was all Ego Trip. It was all those guys. It was all YN, Gabe, Brent Rollins, Sasha, Jim Ackerman, Christian McLaughlin from VH1, and this amazing crew. Right. And this amazing cast.
0: Um, you were just seen as the most respected white rapper, elder statesman that they could use at that time?
2: I think I was the only one. <laughs> yeah, that was not a lot of... I think I was the only a one. A lot of
0: baggage with most of the other ones, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, and, um, yeah, and and, you know, I just... The thing that was crazy is the first episode, they started to give me like an, an ear wig and like, oh, we're going to feed you information. I'm like, just tell me what I need to do. Like, can you, I don't need all this. Just tell me what I need to do. Mm. And they're like, all right, this is going to happen. And the rapper's going to be there and you're going to say this. And then that's going to be it. I said, cool. They said, you sure you don't need none in here? Got it. And I, I did it. And what you see on the first episode when I'm like, I don't care what the fuck we put you through, yada, 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 da, this and this and this, that was all one take, done. Mm -hmm. I go back to the room, control room, and Jim Ackerman, who was at the time the head of programming, got tears in his eyes. And he says, I've been doing this for a long time, that was the best TV I ever saw. Wow. And a month later, Ken Mock, who was the production company, says how do you feel about doing a talk show called Search? And within six months I had a deal at Universal Pictures to do my own talk show. Wow. And it was all because of the White Rapper Show. Right. You know. And um, fast forward now to 2021, YN put something up about the anniversary of the white rapper show and it started all this thing. Oh, John Brown should have won. What happened to Persia? What happened to this? So I was like, you know what? I'm going to get the, the crew together and do a reunion on search says. Oh really? We did a two part.
1: Oh
0: fuck. I wish I saw that before it's, I did this it's on my YouTube. God damn it's it. It's on my
2: YouTube. That's amazing. Yeah. So I had John boy. I had just Ron. I had, um, shamrock, hundred proof. Um, Just talking about the show. Talking about all that shit. Yeah. I had five of the ten on the show from the show. At
0: least some of the conversation about the White Rabbit show when it popped up recently was just that, you know, it would be hard to imagine it occurring in today's social climate <laughs> to say the least fact did though. you have any of That's those concerns though. at the time did it stand out Hell to no. you that this was sort of bizarre no. or was it no. i mean at Here's the time th- white rappers were so rare
2: in rap that it was like how <laughs> could you a, not do a show about dude these it was not only
1: these, <laughs> it was these not only they're unicorns man. it was
2: not only rare but the period of time before it was that Oh, I'm naughty by nature. We need a white rapper. We'll grab Milkbone. Oh, we're a fucking successful black rap group. We'll grab Jojo Pellegrino. Mm. It was like every successful black rap group needed a white rapper. It's like everybody should have one.
0: Because all these dudes who come from like street backgrounds or whatever, they're all clever fucking businessmen. They're all like used to really having a hustle. So to them, like the idea of like, and it's the same reason why they all have a girl rapper. Because they just see it, it as like low-hanging yeah. fruit. fruit. It turns went. out it's actually incredibly difficult to ex- execute. Without question. It, it's and, worth a shot.
2: And, and one of my favorite stories about Aftermath. Right. My, one of my dear friends, shout out to James Lopez, who, who runs Will Packer's company um, and did marketing for Atlantic for years. Um, he was the head of marketing at Aftermath. And uh, Drake comes in. And he says, the first artist we're going to put out. Now, mind you, I don't think you remember this. Probably don't. It was the first time in the history of radio that Aftermath had a national platform. When Dre announced Aftermath, he was interviewed by Angie Martinez. It was syndicated. Right. MS allowed. It was on fucking like 100 stations. And he was playing this this group and this group and this group and this group and this group. And it was crickets, bro. It was fucking crickets. Everything that Dre played, played the firm. That was the last thing he played was the firm. Right. Because, right. I mean, his
0: project around that time tanked as well.
2: Terrible. Yeah. Including the firm. He, he,
0: he really right. took a step back stylistically from what he had been doing before. But
2: to have that ability, to have that stature, to do a nationally promoted thing about aftermath and Dr. Dre, the great Dr. Dre, right. and have like it just not be what it is, right? Right. So, fast forward, and Dre comes into a meeting at Aftermath. This is, you know, I'm hearing this secondhand, by the way. I'm not saying that I was in the room. Right. And Dre announces that he's, the first record he's putting out is Eminem. Mm. And all of the black executives are like, no! What the fuck? Are you? What? What? Ah! Like. Literally losing their minds, right? And obviously, we all know how that turned out. But
0: but it's easy to see how they would have felt that way because they're like, we're expecting a return to form. We want you to go back to the chronic. We don't want this lyrical
2: fucking white kid. And and it's not even lyrical, non lyrical. We don't want white blank. Yeah. Um. And obviously, we're talking about an anomaly of an MC Mm. now, right? Fast forward twenty some years, he's still fucking. Bodying verses, right? mm. um, so the white rapper show was basically easy, low hanging fruit, as in your words, because from 1997 to 2007, when our show was on, there was one,
1: mm.
2: so it was easy. We, we just put it out there. We're going to find the next great white hope. But that's not what the show was about. Mm. It was a social experiment to show how far our culture came from 1520 Cedric Boulevard to fucking dudes who listen to fucking Alabama who don't know what Run's House was, mm. you know. And I love those dudes. Like we've talked about it on on the podcast when we did the reunion. I had to pretend like I hated those kids. I fucking loved those kids. Mm. They were great kids. But and that's the but the television challenge was that we had to show them for who they were not what they wanted to be mm. right and what they wanted to be and who they were were two totally separate things for us meaning ego trip vh1 the white rapper show it was about how far did they fall you got a kid like you know hallelujah halabag john Bo- you know john brown who's creating business cards I'm putting his name on it. So when he goes to dinner with Jules Santana, he's hanging in a Fugazi business card. Like it's the craziest shit. It's Persia getting drunk and waving a black dildo. You know, it was the it was the it was it was a zeitgeist. Mm. It was really a zeitgeist. It was lightning in a bottle. We were the number one show on television, 1849, every week that we were on. The premiere was the largest, most viewed show for like five years on VH1. It was crazy. Right. But there was never gonna be a second season. Really? No, no, because it wasn't it wasn't a competition show. It was a social experiment.
0: But at least within that framework, I mean it wouldn't have probably been that hard to find like eight more funny white rappers to make content out of it.
2: But I will tell you, if you watch I and I hope you become a fan of my podcast the way I am of yours, because I think you'll enjoy a lot of the interviews I've had. I've had Chris Mark. Chris Rock, Kamal Bell, Method Man, John Cryer, Roger Clemens. You know We've had some really great talent. But I think for you being a white rapper fan, I think you would really enjoy that, that I got to listen to at least those yeah. reunion yeah. episodes yeah. for yeah. sure. There's, yeah. And there's two. There's a part one and a part two. Um, the one thing that really resonated with all of them is that they saw this as their shot. Mm. They really did. And the one guy who really got it, got it was Shamrock. Like, because Shamrock legitimately not only won the show, he was a legitimate writer, producer. Went back to you know Atlanta, worked with all the right people, made music, continued to make music, and is still in music right. to this day, um, behind the scenes. So you know, yeah, could there have been? But there was no reason to, because the functionality wasn't like okay. We're gonna watch Shamrock explode, and now we got to find the next one. Hmm. It was a social experiment; it's all it was. And then we did Miss Rap Supreme, and Yo Yo, and that show was also amazing. You know, right. we had Kai on and you know, Biada and you know, but it, was it didn't stick hmm. because it was three years before Nikki. Right. If Nikki would have blown up in 2010, Miss Rap Supreme would have been a fucking monster show. We were three years too early for that show.
0: It's interesting how, like, that was a real time period for hip-hop reality TV because everybody remembers the band so fondly. But I think it's pretty much most people would kind of agree that it would be tough to recreate that same energy again.
2: Oh, yeah, no, I think, you know, you... Yeah, you know, I know this is like a real Hollywood word, zeitgeist, right? But you create the zeitgeist. It's lightning in a bottle. Like you right. can't recreate that lightning in a bottle, right? Like you have a great moment and what happens in that moment? It's great timing. It's great perspective. It's great opinion. And it just lands where it lands, right? And right. it's like that. It's that perfect, perfect vault, right. right? Like you might practice it 150 times, but when it's time to do it in the Olympics, you only have one shot. Right. Right. It's that. It's that, same, it's that same thing. Um, and, and, you know, for me, a lot of uh, fans of the show have always asked, you know, when are you going to do another one? It's very challenging for people who are just seeing it from an entertainment perspective to say, you know, we need another great white hope or we need another white rapper show. You don't understand the science behind it because that's not what the show is about. Watch the episodes again. Watch what the fucking comp- the, the, the challenges were mm. and, and see who the challenges were and who they were in front of but you don't you think that
0: those characters were so compelling that that made the whole show but don't you
2: think that there's a lot of other good characters out there yeah but there's not the uniqueness anymore like in 2007 how many white rappers could you count on your one hand that you respected mm. Bronson didn't happen until 2010. Asher Roth didn't happen until 2009. Mac Miller, rest in peace, didn't happen until 2010. Mm -hmm. Like, all the white rappers that now that people respect that are of the ilk of the culture, and there's a lot of them, I'm sure I can name 20 more, and Bobby J from Rockaway. I mean, there's just so many great white rappers now. And? Yeah. thing. now I agree. And and, Um, and then the other thing, bro, the other thing that I think is important to recognize... There wasn't a lot of places to break music in, 20, in 07. Mm. Like You still needed radio, you still needed television. Now motherfuckers can be in their basement doing Gucci Gang and saying that shit for two and a half, three minutes, and all of a sudden you do 27 billion streams.
0: People also forget that 2007, the music industry was basically completely dead.
2: Dead, dead. I remember going to see Sylvia Rowan saying, hey, we're doing this show. What do you think about doing a record deal for the, for the guy who wins? I couldn't even get her attention. Mm. Couldn't even get her attention for that conversation. She was like, Search, it's so great to see you. How are you? How's your wife? Right. I was like, did I not just say something? Right. I was like, all right, Sylvie, I love you too. You know, and I was out the door.
0: She was that disinterested in oh, signing just new told, rap talent. Yeah. Not
2: even new rap talent, just trying to figure out how to pay the rent. Right. You know, most, most label execs, I remember seeing Alan Grunblatt. And Alan Grunblatt, who was running E1, said, Sir, the only reason you're fucking even in here is because you have a TV show. Mm. Like, I wouldn't give a fuck about a shamrock.
0: Even a great rapper was not very valuable to them at that time. Yeah. And the ones who really seemed like they needed some development were even less desirable. And dude,
2: like, even to this day, like, you know, I do my best to tell people, like, even to this day, I don't give a fuck how hot you are. If you're signed to Republic, if you're signed to Def Jam, if you're signed to Columbia, I don't give a fuck how hot you are, to break a record today is a million dollars, mm. period. So I don't know about you. A million dollars is a lot of money to me. Mm. And to have to do that for 30 acts, they would have a darn good reason to spend that kind of money. You know? So, you know, the good news about like digital era is like, okay, I can see if a kid Leroy has 30 billion streams or 30 million or whatever it is. Okay. I can afford to spend, you know, blank on promoting them. I can Mm -hmm. spend this much on the music video. I can spend this much on putting them on tour. I can spend this much on radio promotion, video promotion, all of that still costs a million dollars. You got to figure out how to recoup that. Hmm. You know what I'm saying?
0: Did that show change your perspective on the value of content? Before that, you had been doing... That's a great fucking question. Wow.
2: (laughs) Jesus. You'd been doing radio before that. I might have to fucking move around for that one. Damn.
0: Wow. Well, it just seems like... a
2: fucking question, It seems like
0: everything you did after that might have been influenced by that. that piss really
2: gave you some perspective on this interview. Great. Mm. Well played, sir. (laughs) That's strong urine. Um, (laughs) I got to tell you, uh, the the thing that was interesting to me um, when I did the show was the opportunities that really came to me early, early on. Um, Besides obviously doing my own talk show and having that opportunity that didn't happen, MySpace had just started to pop. Mm. Um, So opening a MySpace page and having a million followers on MySpace and being able to convey messaging, convey opportunities, you know, I never realized that, you know, on a social platform, I can get bookings, you know, doing shows, doing New Year's events and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it not only changed the way I saw content, but it also saw the way that the world was changing how to reach audience. Mm. And that became such an engaging, intoxicating thing for me. Um, And I utilized that because around that same time. Me and my partners um, were involved in building a liquor company called Nouveau. Mm-hmm. It was a pink carbonated vodka. looked like it was in a tall lipstick can, uh, bottle. Um, and it was me and five partners. and that's how we broke the company. You know, we started a whole campaign: "Real men drink pink," and it was ludicrous. And it was Ross, and it was Wayne, and it was T Pain, and it was you know, and I mean, you want to talk about accelerated? We went from. 600 cases in 08 to 60,000 cases in 2010. Well, you know, We sold the company to Diageo in 2011 for I think it was either 200 or $376 million. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? In just three years. So um, I not only saw that there was an, an amazing way of distributing content but it was an amazing way of accelerating business and creating opportunities for young entrepreneurs and so that's where my pivot was. When I got that payout I moved to florida and kept a large percentage of that because i wasn't paying state tax mm. and started to just like work with young entrepreneurs on on new ventures right
0: yeah it feels like a lot of rappers have kind of had that transformation throughout their career where they start to realize that it's not just about like a song it's about content in general yeah but that you probably like hit that realization ahead of the curve as a result of uh being yeah. involved with that
2: i think also the, you know the other thing that you know what, again, and this just just happened to me, is I also kind of went into a downward spiral with my addiction. Mm. So, you know, at the same time, like we're making a shit ton of money with, you know, Nouveau and doing all of that, you know, I was really miserable in my own addiction. Mm. And um, it really hit hard when, you know, you're sitting in a beautiful home and you're on the 14th, you know, fairway of a... um, of a golf course on a private, you know, um, community, and your wife is saying, yo, either go get help or you're going to lose your family. Really? And you're the most, you know, most successful that you've ever been, you know. Um, And uh, that dichotomy really also hit hard, you know, Um, because I just lost control, you know, and the addiction took over and the things that – kind of were challenging about, you know, what I loved about reaching out to people also was, you know, becoming tremendously dangerous mm. for my family and for my, and my own health. So, you know, it was, uh, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful that I got a, a real one in my life. You know, my wife is a, a real ride or die. She could have left a billion times, bro. Mm. You know, whenever I hear that Lady Gaga song, it chokes me up because I gave my wife a billion reasons to stay to leave and she always found one good one to stay. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like for real for real. Like she is that record was written for my wife and she, and Gaga doesn't even know it. You wow. know what I'm saying? And it was the least I can do as a man to at least give it the best I could to try recovery, try to find, you know, try to find the things that were making me ugly to my wife and ugly inside. You know what I'm saying? So and that was also a great way. You know, social media was also a great resource for me because I also dealt with a lot of other things. That you know, I wasn't being open about my bipolar disorder. I wasn't being open about you know, emotional challenges I was having. I wasn't being open about. But I was able to see a lot of that through social media, and I was also able to utilize a lot of that um, connectivity to people. You know what I mean? So it was this great growth, this great expansion, but. Also, the ability to make amends to my daughter and, you know, make amends to my wife and make amends to my children, but also make amends to friends, you right. know, um, and, and be willing. And I got to tell you, man, honestly, bro, when I got into recovery, I was the most successful I ever was. And I lost everything when I was in recovery. Everything. Everything. How so? How because so? When I got into recovery, one of the things I learned is I had to get rid of people, places, and things. So all the people I was making money with, I couldn't make money with anymore. Mm. So all the people I was dealing with, I, I couldn't go hang out with Rick Ross. and talk to him about a deal for a liquor company. He's going to blow smoke in my face. I don't, I don't have that strength right now. Can't do business in the liquor space. Even though I don't drink, I can't do that. So I can't even be in the music business, really. And everything dried up. And there was seven years time where I like had to rebuild. But the one thing I didn't lose ever is my recovery. Mm. I didn't lose that. So I was, while I was losing something materialistic, I was building something emotional, spiritual and more profound. So when I kind of emerged, I emerged and in less time, I created a much more rapid level of success than I've ever had. You know? Um, and I see things so much different. And, and going back to your question about social media, the beautiful thing about it now is like, I fuck with this kid. I love this kid. Not, young artist named uh, Surf out of Atlanta.
1: Mm.
2: Found out about him. He put out three mixtapes, Bad Human, Badder Human, and Baddest Human. And he just put out a, an EP called Sustaining Injury. But what I love about this kid is on the humble, just on the humble, one day he's like, yo, I'm on Discord, a secret surf. And all he does on, Sis- on Discord Saturdays is all his fucking fans, and all he talks about is his mental health. Lost his mother to addiction. Talks about it openly. Like, it's fucking amazing. It's like a fucking going to a, th- a group therapy session, mm. you know? And I love that about the kid. I-, I mean, not only is he just fucking super talented artist, and MC, and I love his music. His new single, Wasabi, is fucking crazy. I was just listening to it when I- on my way here. But to have that kind of openness, you know, to be an artist that says, you know what? I'm going to expose my warts. Because I didn't, who the fuck was talking like that? You know, blank amount of years ago. You know? So the beautiful part about what I learned from MySpace early on and in, in my fandom and in, you know, my fame early on was I could use it also as a vacuum to grow. And that's what I did. Like, I learned really slowly. And the very first Instagram post I ever did 2013 is backstage with Mac Miller, Arsenio and me. It's mm-hmm. the very first one. And it obviously Mac died 6 months later. Arsenio's show was canceled 6 months later. And it's this reminder for me of what was and also where I where I was in that moment. And that's the beautiful part for me for for social media is that it's an incredible snapshot, but it also gives me an ability to share where I am. Mm.
0: Yeah, for sure. Sometimes I feel like we don't um, we don't really value the medium of our time until it's too late. Like we can all look at a lot of like TV shows from the '80s and '90s. I can look at Supermarket Sweep, and I could be like, "This shit is fucking amazing." <laughs> I'm pretty sure I, I thought it was like trash yo. TV. Yo. Even if I was watching it in the '90s, dude, I
2: was just telling somebody like, "Yo, my shit. Let's make a deal." That was my shit. Oh, love that. Yo, let's oh, make a deal. That. Yo,
0: the girls <laughs> with the cases.
2: <laughs> my shit. A lot of those yo. girls went on to
0: become like oh, valid actresses yo, and shit. Facts. There's an article you could yo. Google about this. Yeah,
2: and the dude behind the scenes, like, oh, the guy. And it, yo, great show. Great show. Oh, loved it. He used Yo. to tune in like every Yo, fucking week for that show. Do you do you watch like America's Got Talent and that shit? Do you watch nah. American Idol? Like me I, neither. But I
0: watched the one with Cardi B and Chance the Rapper and shit as the host. What yeah, was, that was on Netflix, what was right? That, called? that was on Netflix. Rap something. I forget. Yeah. It and like then there was
2: it, and there was another one on Fox with Khaled and Diddy. I don't think I watched that one. That the f- no, but I remember that too, yeah. Yeah. What was it called?
0: rhythm and flow
2: that was the show on netflix yes. rhythm and flow yeah cardi lost her mind on one episode like this dude was fucking rhyming and all of a sudden she came from behind the podium and was like vibing with him i was like oh okay right okay
0: chance telling every single rapper that they weren't being godly enough <laughs> <laughs> that's right it was so funny i was like why are you even here if you're just gonna like they didn't know that there was gonna be a religious part to this No, and the
2: thing that's the fucking worst part of it is the show could have been you know it's one of these things where you watch it after and you go oh now i know why the shit didn't happen next season yeah it's because there was no balance there's no mm-hmm. balance like yo you, there has to be a producer like I, I the one thing i loved about our show mm-hmm. is we had segment producers and one thing that fucking for the white rapper show and for Ms. Rap supreme the one thing that those guys did great is they had segment producers that would go like look I'm going to just keep it on with you. You ain't making this show you're, you're fucking up crazy. Really? Yo, if you don't fucking step your game up right now, you're a fucking rap. Just be fucking clear.
0: Whoa. Make them super <laughs> nervous and on edge on camera?
2: No, off camera.
0: Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying then yo, they get like, on camera and they're <laughs> like, I got to perform like my fucking life depends. Can you imagine if I hype people up like that before their interview? No. This is it.
2: If you don't say some entertainment ta- shit, yo. you're done. <laughs> Let me ta- I was in a, a Spike Lee movie called Bamboozle okay. back in the day. Me, it was me, most deaf. Um, it was the first time that Spike ever did a, a, a film with digital cameras. Uh-huh. We played a, a group called the Mouse, Mouse. We had a big scene. I had, you know, if you are a fan of Spike Lee movies, he always has this, what's called the wake-up scene. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the one big, you know, big theatrical scene. And I get that scene in the movie. And in the movie we kill a character because we call him an uncle Tom and a Sambo and we kill him and we come out of where we kill him and we shot it. We actually shoot the killing on live on, on, a, on a, at that time at a website and we come out and we're smoking. I'm like, yo, who got that fire? And the lights go on. And it's like just a gang of cops. We pull out. Everybody starts bussing. All the people that are black around me die. And I got my gun and I drop it and I'm like, kill me, kill me. I'm black. I'm 116th black. I'm black. And I'm screaming it, all right? Before that scene, Spike comes to me and goes, search. We ain't got a fucking second chance on this, search. Do you understand? We're not gonna fucking do this again. You fuck this up. The whole movie is fucked up. Mm. Do you understand that? Who's your fucking character? Who are you? They're going to let you live. All your fucking friends are going to fucking die just because you look like a fucking cracker. Don't fuck this up. All right, are we rolling? Slay? <laughs> Action! And I killed that scene. Right. I believe I killed... I mean, I, I, when we had the premiere, Prodigy, may he rest in peace, came up to me and he goes... Yo, man, yo, son, that was hard, son. Yo, son, that was hard. When I did that scene, you know, there was all these kind of people and, like, yo, we're going to slam you to the, to the hood. And I said to the guy, even before, I was like, yo, slam me down. on the, He wouldn't slam me. I slammed myself. Like, I mean, I slammed myself on the hood of this car. They're trying to grab me, put me in the car. I'm like, fuck you, Mal mouse. Crying, screaming. They put me in. I'm trying to kick out the glass. They said, cut. And I ran to my fucking trailer, and I cried for like two hours. Two hours. It was that intense. Oh, it was that intense. And that's what made the White Rapper Show so good, because we would have segment producers. And I think those these shows, Rhythm and Flow and all these shows, they don't have people... Who and, and I and I I shouldn't say that because I don't know. I believe they didn't have people that say, listen, yo, you can keep all that God shit <laughs> for about five minutes. Yo, praise Jesus, but fucking blast home because yo, you know, and, and again, I don't know if that's you know what was appropriate in that moment, but we had those moments. We had moments where segment producers were like, Look, just <laughs> you're looking banana now. <laughs> <laughs> Looking crazy, right? You know, you got to fucking step your game up, and you know, and 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 it's really, you know, all those dudes—just Rhyme and just John Brown and John Boy and Persia and especially Persia. Like she, yo, she became such a fan favorite of that show. Like mm. women loved that chick, loved her. Um, but it was just, it was just, it was a zeitgeist, bro. It was never going to happen again. It was never going to work again. And respect for having that
0: attitude, because that is very much not the attitude of the entertainment industry, where normally it's like, oh, it worked for one season. Yeah, We're going to make more seasons until it ceases to be profitable, and then we will exit.
2: And that's, you know, and, it, and if you look at what, you know, Mass Appeal has become and what Sasha Jenkins has become, mm. you don't see them doing like, you know, fucking iced out, volume two and they do what they do and they do it great. And they cover, you don't see fresh dress part two. They do what they do and they do it great and they let it stand, you know? And, um, you know, not to kind of circle back, but it's the same kind of premise that like about our podcast company, bro. It's like, I want to be able to tell great stories and let them stand. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like when I listen to, (laughs) Cain talk about being on the set of posse you know I know that it wasn't his proudest moment being but the way he tells it and how he told it but he'll share with you like we framed it in a way that makes him feel good about telling that story I broke the seat oh yeah um Brian can you write a check for the broken seat thanks man <laughs> appreciate it um but, I need a
0: check for a three-year-old office chair.
2: No problem. Uh, do you want me to go to eBay and buy you the three-year-old? Yes. Okay. Thank Can you. you go on eBay and thank you, appreciate. It. Um, <laughs> uh, but that that really becomes a part of like what we do, you know, whether it's breaking anonymity, search says, or you know, did I ever tell you the one about Big Daddy Kane or the one I ever tell you about MF Doom? It's about doing these scenarios and creating these scenarios with these people that tell these stories that. Stand the test of time so that hopefully, you know, somebody goes back 10 years later and says, Yo, man, you know, this was so blank, epic, important, whatever, you know, because the storytelling needed to be told. Mm. You know, I spoke to Shock G three weeks before he died. Really? You know, he, that was my man. Like, we spoke all the time. And we would talk about all the time him telling his story. And it's just one of those things, bro. It's like, tomorrow's not promised. And, I wish I would have, because his story is amazing, like just the amount of records he wrote with Tupac, just that stuff, you know, just besides building and making Digital Underground and going on the tour with him and, you know, the stories that he and I and Tupac had together, like, you know, those can't replicate those when somebody's in the the dirt.
1: Mm.
2: So that's the beautiful part of what I'm trying to build.
0: Right. You know, you've seen a lot of success throughout your career. What do you feel like you're doing it for at this point? Like, you know, you could probably just chill, right? Maybe you couldn't, but you probably, you know, there's like a lot of different things you could be doing with your life. Like, what what do you feel like is really driving you at this point?
2: The storytelling. Mm. For me, it's purely about the fact that I feel that we are superior in how we tell our stories. And that the relationships I have with the artists is unique because we're able to tell the stories in a way that no one else thinks about. Mm. Um, I think that's one of the things. And, And I don't think I'm in a place where I can chill yet. You know, my wife and I talked about it. You know, we're building this house and we talk about, you know, the next five years and what that looks like. I'll be 59. I'll be probably 60. You know, I'll probably be in a different place. You know, 60, probably sell the house, live six months in a different country every six months, move someplace, you know, Mm. be in a different spot. You know, we have a lot of things going on that, you know, we're not talking about. I told you about Unition and what we're doing in the virtual space, but I have 10 other businesses that we're growing, you know, that I can't talk about, you know, right now. Um, And all of them have amazing fruit that they're going to bear, and I'll see where I'm at. But I'm not a chaser. Like, I know what my number is, you know, and I know when I hit that number, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I don't need certain things to make me happy. And it's different when I was in active addiction. I thought there were certain things I wanted, you know, certain things that, that were important for me to have. And now 10 years into recovery, I realize it's not only not true, but it never was true. It was always more about, like, finding a personal contentment and finding closeness with my wife and and reconnecting with my kids and, and more importantly, leaving a legacy, not only with the Timeless Podcast Company of storytelling that I'm proud of, but being able to walk away knowing that whatever amends I made, I made. Whatever mistakes I made, I fixed. And whatever I couldn't fix, I'm okay with that. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And then just, you know, the rest of it is just hanging with friends, hanging with family, enjoying playing around a golf, enjoying a good cigar, you know, being able to just travel with my bride wherever we want to go and enjoy my kids and, you know, just doing shit that, you know, is, um, is truly relevant. You know, I lost my father three months ago. And when I was sitting with him, I said, you know, my dad just turned 91. And I said, you know, dad, how, how fast did it go? And he looked at me and he said, Michael, and went by in a blink. And he said, enjoy every moment. He said, because I would do anything to have another moment with your mother. You know? And it reminds me of something that a mentor said to me. He goes, nobody on their deathbed ever says, man, I wish I had more time at work. Mm-hmm. You know? And when I think about your who was the blood, who was the rider, who you don't have another moment with, or I think about MF Doom, or I think about Shock G, and I think about all the friends that I've lost. You know, it's not about the work, man. You Mm. know, it's not about the success. It's about those moments of time. You know, the greatest gift I had, bro, is that I was able to take my kids to school every day and pick them up every day, Mm. you know? Um, I might not have been the most present father, And certainly I was in active addiction, so I'm sure I wasn't the best father, but I was there. And I enjoy those moments, you know, and I was there to celebrate those moments. And again, I might be really selfish in saying that because probably wasn't the best for my kids, but I know I got that, you know, I got that. Um, The other thing I I tell people in, in breaking anonymity is, you know, when my mother died in 2013, I couldn't really feel it. You know, Mm. I was still very numb. Um, But I didn't want to use. I just, you know, I wanted to be there for my father. You know, he'd lost his wife. He'd lost his best friend. And then, like, a year later, I lost my dog. My dog died in my lap on my way to the hospital. And that was the first time I really felt pain. You know what I'm saying? Like, I really wanted to use. When my father died, I had to bring him from Montana to New York to bury him. And it was a process, working with my brother. My brother was a process. And it was the first time in my life I felt loss. like I really felt that loss, my father. And it was, I realized that I was able to deal with that loss because of the work that I've done in recovery. And I wasn't hiding from the pain that I could feel that pain without having to numb it with anything. I don't knock anybody who needs to smoke weed or drink to deal with pain or loss. What I'm saying is there's another way you can deal with it, and you might want to just take a look at it.
0: Mm. Yeah, that really hits home because I just uh, found out my cat's got cancer this morning.
2: I'm so sorry, bro. Yeah. How long has you had your cat?
0: 15 years.
2: Uh, Yeah. I had my two dogs, one 17 years and one... Fifteen years mm. and my youngest teddy man this he was a he was the fucking man, bro mm. small kiss everything we found out like two years prior that his heart was bad, and then you know he just started smokestack breathing on my lap on the way to the hospital and we lost him Fuck. um my other dog, Gizmo was an asshole I fucking hated that dog, but we had the seventeen years wouldn't lick, wouldn't kiss, like just an asshole, but just was the sweetest thing. And found out she was in renal failure, like would drink water and then just pee it out and just wasn't gonna have a quality of life. And we put her down. Mm. It was really painful, but man, I, it's just, when you lose a pet, that's a family member, mm. you know, and you try your hardest to deal with not only helping them at ease, but remembering all the good and all the happy, you know, it's um, it's something you want to feel, bro. You know, it's something you want to feel. And I, I really hope for you, you allow yourself to feel that, bro. Mm. I hope you don't try to numb it. And I hope you allow yourself to feel it, because I think if you do, you're going to really grow from it
0: yeah like that dude Gabe I was telling you about who got killed like I was very I was on tour when I found out Mm. and I was just like very much in the in the midst of of course the clout and like the early stages of this really like becoming something you know and I always kind of like think about that I was just so caught up in my lifestyle at the time that I didn't really have I didn't cry I didn't have any ability to like feel it at that time you know
2: yeah when I buried my father it was the first time I had gone back to my mother's um, gravesite, and that was when I felt it. So, you might have to visit your man. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I'll share with you from personal experience, like when you get that place of quiet, and you visit your man, like. Like I used to every five years go visit Skylar Rock's grave. Me and Chris, we'd go and take, you know, a forty with us and just go and you know, and in the moment, you know, I couldn't even go to the funeral. Like I just couldn't go, you know, just it was too hard. And um, and we would go and visit. So just as a friend, bro, and just someone who respects the shit out of you, I think you know, in my experience. If you don't feel like you have that closure, go visit his grave mm. and go just go have a conversation with him. You know what I'm saying? Touch the gravesite, just know he's there in spirit and give yourself that a moment and that ability to step away from the biking and step away from the, you know, the clout you have and the success you have and the family and the things that you've built that are so beautiful and just allow yourself to be in that moment with your friend. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And I think that'll give you some closure.
0: Yeah, that's real the cat thing's even tougher though to be honest.
2: Oh yeah, of course because that's, that's your baby. Every day. Yeah, that's your baby. And and to see your cat suffer and uh, to see anybody suffer but to see a pet suffer especially when it's to no fault of their own. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And and to have a cat for 15 years like it you know, I I trust me, I feel that pain for you and I feel how much it hurts you and I can see how much it's challenging for you and um you know, just love on that Animal, the best you can, enjoy it as best you can, and mourn it as best you can. You know, really be in the moment as best you can with that. And also, it's a great way of tr- teaching your daughter about love and loss mm. and give her that moment. Yeah, she's obsessed with them, but she's only yeah. nine months. So yeah. yeah. You know, and the one thing, again, that I learned, you know, when we were taking. Her dog's name is Gizmo to put her down we gave all of our kids because they were all grown the ability to FaceTime and say goodbye mm. you know um, and they all you know we're all very emotional and all very sad and but it's important to have that closure you know, it's really important to have that closure and a nine month old whether obsessed or not they might not be able to articulate it yet but they're gonna feel the loss mm. And I would suggest you just dad to dad, don't let that relationship of that cat with you go years without you explaining that loss to your daughter. Because you might get another animal, you know, you might get several Mm. and just say, you know, hey, you know, this is our cat. Our other cat is no longer with us. Love on this cat. Tomorrow's not promised. Enjoy that moment with her or him, whatever you get, and just use that as a as a time to like really bond with your daughter and bond with your soon to be bride because it, it just it's a it's a place where you can educate your children and create a bond with your family that most people don't that most people take for granted. Mm-hmm. They don't allow themselves to have that bond. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. I'm just like starting to wrap my head around it because i just heard it this morning and i was like oh i gotta go put on my fucking work face and go do this shit all day but it's kind of been lurking in the back of my head and when you said all that it just made me kind of have to start thinking about it you know
2: yeah and it's not easy bro and and i'm so sorry that you found out today and and you know but again man it's like you had 15 years bro what a blessing yeah You yeah 15 amazing years with this partner of yours. you know and it's a blessing, bro. You know, so try to enjoy the blessing,
1: mm.
2: you know, try to enjoy the good times, try to enjoy those moments, keep plenty of pitches around the house and, and just see it as a blessing, mm. you know, because it could have been five days. It could have been five months, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah.
0: I feel like I can't fucking do this interview anymore. It's gonna, be hard. Okay. it's gonna be hard to talk about you when I'm fucking thinking about this goddamn cat. <laughs> All
2: right, well, yeah, you can talk about girls, you know, sucking dick if you want to finish. Just end, end it with that if you've seen a lot of that too. It's, I'm sure, I'm sure you've lived that life, bro.
0: Many times in my life, I've yeah. been performing a sex act, and I looked over, and my cat was staring at me.
2: We just got two cats ourselves, my wife. We mm. just got two cats, and. Uh, when, uh, the, let's just put it this way, the cats need to be in the hall.
0: Yeah, keep them yeah. away. Can't have he, it. He's old enough. I to, keep he thinking won't even about, hop on the bed.
2: Let me tell you something. I keep thinking about the Cedric, the entertainer, I, or was it was it Cedric the entertainer, or was it the guy who did this, the thing about having sex with the girl and the cat licked the balls? <laughs> Every time he had sex with the girl, the cat licked the balls. Right. And he was like, he broke up with her, and he was like, Fucking done. And I'm taking the cat with me. <laughs> um, I don't know if that was Cedric or if that was Bernie Mac. It might have been Bernie Mac, rest in peace. Yeah. But he said, yeah. He was like, what the fuck is that? The cat would lick his balls every time he had sex with the cat. And he broke up with the girl. And he's like, fucking done. I'm taking the cat with me. I've heard from a lot of guys about
0: dogs trying that move on them.
2: I'm very, very thankful that neither one of my dogs practiced that. That would have been strange. Yeah, I'm not
0: ready for that.
2: Nah, not ready for that.
1: No.
0: Cats got that rough tongue too.
2: <laughs> Yo, know, what's up with the rough tongue? Like, <laughs> uh, is it because they clean their own fur?
0: It must be good for cleaning because that's all they fucking do. Yeah, yeah. nah, nah,
2: no. Nah, I don't it's know. Like a reverse tongue. My homeboy, um, my man Brett. We're, I'm actually working on a new project with um, a bunch of friends of mine called the Co Defendants, putting out a rap record. And um, he's got this giant. Blue-nosed pit bull named Brian. He leaves paws. <laughs> <laughs> you should get him over here? <laughs> and this dog just loves people, man. But when he's standing at the door, it's the most terrorizing. Like this is a pit bull mastiff mm. named Brian. Like Brian, and I'm like, Yo, why the fuck did you name this cat and this fucking dog Brian? Right. He's like, because I didn't want him to be fucking ferocious. Like, when some people realize <laughs> that he's a blue-nose today, Brian, they're kind of cool with him. Like, they're like, yeah, whatever, Brian. <laughs> right. Like, it takes away the fucking, like, you know, it's like seeing a big-ass gangster dude, and the dude's name is, you know, Snarky or some shit. You right. know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like, Snarky.
0: But I feel like the thing that's intimidating about Pitbull is just their nature, not, like, the name so much, you know?
2: This... I can't imagine my man's pit bull ever hurting anyone, oh, ever. Okay.
0: He's a chill, chillman.
1: Yeah, no, nah,
2: like, you know, like ever, like ever. But it's one of those things when, you know, you're at the door and it's just pit bulls, rah, 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 you know, barking, not growling, barking because you, mm. he, he's startled. And then all of a sudden he's licking your face and he's trying to sniff your balls. And it's like, he's the coolest dude ever. And his name is Brian. Right. Brian, the pitbull. Brian, the pitbull. Shout out to Brian the Pitbull.
0: My brain goes to Brian from Family. Got to be totally honest. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Very, that's that's famous basic, dog named Brian. Yeah.
2: By the way, I I was a caricature, on on, on the, the show really, on the Cleveland show actually. Oh wow. Yeah. It's on if you see my Instagram. It's in that's my photo.
0: I feel like that's a thing in this world is that like every chubby black guy gets compared to Cleveland at some point.
2: That's that's actually a a fact in some way shape or form
0: i have multiple friends of mine who who get called cleveland from time to time shut up vel i mean but there's a lot of those too any nerdy bug guy gets compared to urkel or fucking uh, this carlton, is also true carlton as well. carlton also they have more yeah. of a country cl- club swag that's a Carlton
2: total and he's a hell of a golfer so he fucks mm. it up the narrative totally gets fucked up with carlton because that motherfucker can golf Mm. Like real talk and fucking swing the clubs. And then when he puts the ball in, in, in the cup, he does the Carlton, which is just makes it worse. I've seen him
0: whore that dance out so many goddamn times oh at my this God. point. Yo, dude. <laughs> He'll show up at the Citibank party to fucking do that on stage for a fucking quick check. Can you do
2: the Carlton? Uh, I'm going to respect myself da- and just not. What's, what's your dance move? What's your go-to dance move?
0: Well, I've had a lot of my friends actually point out that I, I have like, kind of like this oh, motion. Do the, when oh, I, you do the white man two-step. A little bit when I'm like really feeling something that I'll kind of like start doing this little running man type thing, but slowed down.
2: Yeah, I got you. Right. Oh, boy. Please, please just. We need a cooler white man move for that.
0: Yeah, we need Jack Harlow to do that one. Oh,
2: yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yo, shout out to Jack Harlow for his maneuver on Sweetie. At the runway. Mm. That was that was a power move. That was a real power move. I, I feel and that like, was a real power move. I feel like shout out to the shout out to Jack for trying to squeeze up on that. In front of a pops. Right. Like that's a fucking strong move. Like he went up to her while she was doing the interview and said, excuse me, love, I'm Jack Harlow. Mm. Dad is right there. Dad is right there. Makes the maneuver. Listen, Jack Harlow. White man move of the year.
0: Jack Harlow, when, ladies When and gentlemen. I think about the history of white rappers i don't feel like there's ever been a white rapper who exuded an effortless cool like jack harlow i feel like a lot of white rappers even the really successful ones, shout out to logic they exude a sort of try hard vibe to at least some extent there's, I'm going to throw it to Mac Miller and say that he didn't have a whole lot of that. I'm going to throw it to Paul Wall and say he didn't have that at all. He was very effortlessly cool as well. But Jack Harlow, there's something special that he brings to the white rapper game. In my opinion.
2: No, I'm just I'm literally going through my white man Rolodex. Now I just showed how old I am because I said Rolodex, not contactless. Mm. Uh, I still cool white rappers. Hmm. I'm going to go with again man. no I, I'm, I think this is a fair I think early Everlast when he was mm-hmm. with Ice-T Rhyme Syndicate and he had that record syndication I think dope new styles of rhyme are breaking science down with the rhyme syndicate alliance. you want the tip at the crack of whip you know what I'm saying about ships and slips of the lip you be drunk I getting drunk with the bottom of the rosé, keeping my trunk punk. Yo, he was fucking. I gotta give it to E on that mm. one. Like he was suave bola on that shit. Um, but I will give you that Jack is effortlessly cool, effortlessly cool. Yeah, and Black SUV is a fucking beast of a record. Mm. That record is a
0: beast. I think in part that that moment with him and Sweetie kind of stood out to people a lot because it's maybe like a moment where people realize like, oh, Jack Harlow
2: maybe is the rare white boy who could bag a Sweetie. And when she said, when she's holding his hand, he said, why is your hand shaking? And he put his hand in and she's, what? Woo and she got geeked. Mm. She got geeked. His game, as they say around the way, was on fleek, I hear. I hear they use that language. He's even
0: smart enough that we don't know who the fuck he's smashing for the most part. You hear a few whispers here and there, but what are know, the whispers? Well, the Addison Ray thing was a little bit publicized. I don't know who else has really been mm-hmm. reputably. Oh, yeah. uh, she's a she's like pretty much the biggest TikTok girl. So
2: no, I, I know who Addison Ray is, but I'm not really. Look, check in for chicks like that who steal black dance moves and don't give fucking credit where credit's due. Fuck that bitch. I
0: think she does credit now, fuck all
2: white people who steal black dances and don't give them motherfuckers their credit and then fucking live in big-ass houses and don't give fucking credit. Fuck you. Stop stealing black culture, you fucking vultures. And fuck Fortnite. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. they be stealing dances. I don't know. But that's, uh, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) But that's some real shit like, yo, there's like, did you see the New York Times um, special? But now Fortnite has
0: Martin Luther King. Doing a speech, not as a playable character.
2: No, I know. Um, But did you see the New York Times special on black creators who try to do a black creative house in Atlanta, and the dude that created one of the dances, Addison Ray, stole it Yo, it's a great special. It's a great it's a great documentary wow. on black creators.
0: Stop stealing dances.
2: And also they said that the algorithm purposely, TikToks purposely like shiny bright things. That's why black creators don't get as much likes on the on the TikTok algorithm. Wow. Yeah.
0: I can also say that we've had TikToks deleted for rappers saying the N word in the TikToks, which seems kind of Bizarre to me. I don't really know how I feel about the other, a Chinese conglomerate the making the decision thing, about how we're allowed ask, to communicate. I, I want to ask
2: you this though, as as a white creator.
0: Right. Allegedly. Um, Allegedly.
2: I haven't got the 23 of me back yet. Um, I'm sure you have one drop of plaque, but like got, we all do. I have to. Have to. There all has black. to be. There's some swag. <laughs> um, what do you think about this notion that There is a way that Instagram, way that social media algorithms really do not give equal credence to black creators. And why is there, uh, or do you believe there is there, this stymied section of black creators who do not accelerate Mm. because they're black?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that specifically, but I will say that uh, it does stand out that, like, you you see the same pattern play out over and over where you'll see, like, a black guy doing a certain type of skit, and then you'll see a white guy doing the same exact fucking skit, yeah. and it kind of just, like, hits a bigger audience because, you know, maybe people want to see somebody that is more relatable to them doing that. But then the weird thing about it is that now, with the TikTok sounds, it's like you're importing, you know, it would be incredibly easy if I see a black guy doing a skit on TikTok. I just use that sound. I mouth over the actual skit that he's doing. And this is now blasted out to my fan base,
1: mm-hmm.
0: essentially erased of any trace of him unless they were to click that sound. Right. So it kind of like it, it, it makes it so that people just completely mirroring other creators' skits is like almost like encouraged.
2: Yeah, That's one of the bizarre. things I, I will share with you, and I wasn't going to share with you, but I am going to share with you because I've really become quite fond of you on this this conversation we're having. Thank you. I created a, because of creators who were being um, basically banned from social media because they were using beats that mm-hmm. weren't DMCA approved. Okay. Me and my partner created an entire uh, lo-fi um, platform called Portal. You can go uh-huh. to Spotify, P-R-T-L, and it's all DMCA approved beats but we did all different genres. So we're the only lo-fi company in the world that does bossa nova, synthwave, alt rock, reggaeton, reggae, calypso, soca, as well as lo-fi, hip hop, and lo-fi, all of that. Right. And we are in the, in the process of doing a partnership with Exet, so that all the players on the Xset platform can use our music without being stripped down and taken down. That's what's up. So it launched two weeks ago, and uh, we have more partnerships that we're doing. But it was one of those things that's like, you know, you see a question, and I'm in a position, thank goodness, today where I can find a solution. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And work with creators who make amazing music, pay them to make these instrumentals, and be able to provide them to people on platforms around the world that can utilize that music. And never have to worry about it being taken down.
0: Do you feel like you also just have a passion for just building businesses, period? Because you're talking about that liquor company that you sold. You're talking about something like this. I mean, that doesn't have anything to do with like storytelling or whatever, right? So is that just another?
2: I don't disagree. I mean, I think it's all storytelling. I mean, Nouveau was a really amazing story. Right. I mean, I remember meeting with people in the liquor business that said to me, point blank, that shit's a failure. You're never going to get black men to drink a fucking pink bottle carbonated vodka. Right. And we proved them wrong. Mm. It was an amazing story. Not only did we prove it wrong, but motherfuckers lost their mind over that shit. Mm. Like lost their mind. We were doing 400 videos a year. Something like six, 700 integrations a year. Like it was crazy. So I think that is compelling storytelling. I think that does create stories. I mean, Fat Joe and T-Pain just talked about it on, on his show. Mm. So I think it does create stories. I think that you know, building a portal is about stories, right? Because here you have creators that are talking about Let's Plays and they're talking about integrations and engagement, and they want the right music, and they find an instrumental and it gets, their story gets taken down. Mm. So now they have an opportunity to tell more of their stories. Um, but I love building businesses. It's, it's something that has been a passion of mine, man, for, I mean, since I was a little kid, Mm. you know, so, you know, even third base in a lot of ways was building a business. No one thought we could do what we were going to do. No one thought we had the, the cheat code, if you will, to do what we did and we did it and we, and we, and we fucking smashed through the door in Mm. a lot of ways. Um, so it's always been about creating great story, great content, and I'm going to continue to do that. Unition and what we do in the virtual event space, yo, that's just going to be fucking bonkers, B. Mm. It's just going to be bonkers. What we do in that, what we do with Portal, yo, the next three months, what you're going to be hearing what we're going to do on Portal, the partnerships we're going to create are crazy. Because there's a need, bro. There's a need. It's the same reason why people are so fucking enamored with everything you do. Because there's a need to watch you grow and develop. Like people are invested. I'm invested in what you do, bro. I'm invested in no jumper news. I'm invested in these fucking little things you throw around that watch every fucking day. Watch your daughter fucking, you know, I'm invested in what you do, bro, because it's fucking cool. Yeah, that shit is fucking fire. Yo, phone no jumper water, most wavy wet water in the industry. Fuck with me. You know what I'm saying? Like people get invested because there's an intrigue, right? And not only an intrigue, it's an interest and it's based on integrity. Right? So once you create that capture, that integrity, that you're the same motherfucker, you build from that. You know what I'm saying? So that's always been my thing. The difference is, ego aside, self-centeredness aside, I don't need to be the person in front anymore. Like, I, in fact, I don't want it. I'd prefer to be behind the scenes. I'd prefer to be just allowing other people to grow and develop. I really do search says. And I will say this, and it'll come off egotistical, but I don't care. I do search says because I believe I can be the Howard Stern of hip hop. I believe there's no one better that does interviews than me. Mm. I just honestly believe that. Um, And my research department, how we go into an interview, how we capture content, what I'm terrible at is marketing for myself, not for anybody else. I'm Terrible in self-promotion, I'm terrible in marketing, so I need that help, but I believe that I am the Howard Stern of hip-hop. I just believe that. So I do that for me, right? Everything else we do because the story is important. And even when I'm telling the story or I'm talking to somebody, whether it's Chris Rock sharing that he's on the you know the spectrum and that he has autism of some sort and that he can't watch porn, or I'm talking to Method Man about how he married, you know, you got sister, or I'm talking to John Cryer about how he loved hip-hop going to Bronx Science. like. I want to develop and find information that no one else can find, mm. and I want to I want to dig deep and have my research department all kind of come together, have this consensus of how we're going to approach an interview. Mm. You know, even with Gator, Gator didn't even realize he had a Wikipedia. We played an entire game with him called "Is Gator's Wikipedia Facto or Capo?" Mm-hmm. It was just fun. Like I love that shit, man. It's just I want I want you to. Step to me one day and say, yo, I watched your Blase's plea interview. That shit was crazy. Joe Rogan is a fan. Like, he'll fucking send me a DM and just be like, yo, that shit was you know, That's the shit that makes me happy right now. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's about telling the story.
0: Definitely. I need a research team. You have one? No. She does I'm a lot of on, stuff, but it's my research. Just,
2: <laughs> that was one of the key things that I learned from Howard Stern mm. is that he has... Behind the scenes, he has the best research team in the industry. Mm. And he does his own deep dives of research, but he has an amazing research team. That's what makes him different. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. Something to think about from the people at Getty. Yeah. That watermark?
0: I don't know. Maybe. That's why I think of Getty's that yeah. watermark that nobody yeah. wants to pay to have removed from their photo.
2: <laughs> Getty images. Yeah. No, there used to be a Getty gas company. Okay. Back in the day, and that was the commercial. Something to think about from the people at Getty. They would tell you this compelling thing about the environment that they were destroying. Right. But they would fucking counterbalance it with something to think about from the people at Getty.
0: Yeah. I love that. I love yeah. when I'm listening to a podcast and it's sponsored by like BP. <laughs> and like,
2: <laughs> and it's an environment podcast.
0: Or, or I'll listen to, you know what? I listen to like New York Times, like the Daily podcast and yeah, shit yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. I and, love that one. And that's
2: the one I was telling you about, the black that's
0: the one the daily oh okay so i think i do remember them talking about. You gotta
2: about see it. that on netflix bro that right. shit is fucking fire but like laura mark the date and time
0: you know you'll listen to any random episode of the daily and you'll you know they'll be talking about how facebook misinformation has like corrupted our elections and shit like that yeah. and then one day you'll hear an ad from facebook on the daily where they're clearly just trying to message to their audience like right. we care about user safety and we care about you know <laughs> and it's like they're really allowed to fucking advertise on this platform to try to debunk the things that were just reported on this platform, but yeah, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah,
2: I mean they're journalists, right? So you have this ability to kind of see it from both sides, right? And
0: they probably have like one of the higher standards for journalism journalistic uh, integrity <laughs> uh, on, on many fronts. I would like to think that's
2: like saying Def Jam is still the best rap label in the world, but they're putting out fucking like okay. Danny Lee. I can't believe you know I mean? I'm trying like, to you know cap for
0: fucking the New York <laughs> Times here. But I feel like that the, the wall erected between their advertisers and their content but, is probably higher. than
2: But most. dude, but that's what branding is. Mm. What you just established is why I love what I do cuz you'll still see the New York Times as the ethos because it's the fucking newspaper that either you saw your dad or your grandfather that got you know that everybody saw as the bible of information, right? Mm-hmm. That's a brand that even though they've basically over the last 5 years destroyed the integrity of it still lasts. It's the same way same way Def Jam is still even though they put out Justin Bieber and they put out, you know, some 41, and they're still seen as the rap label that rappers want to be signed to. Are they? Yeah.
0: They are. Who are these I mean- rappers? I'm going to be honest with you. And I've been to Def Jam, I've tapped in over there. Nobody gives a fuck about Def Jam. They're talking about QC and shit. I'm talking about... No, 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 and, and QC
2: know. but QC is different, like it's to different, me Q, QC is different because to me, when I see Def Jam I think of Motown. Right. When I see QC, I think of Death Row. You mm. know what I'm saying? Like it's just different, like they're just built different, and, and what P and what Coach K and now what Chris Hicks are doing is taking that company into a content direction that is just revolutionary. It's mm. just revolutionary. I love those dudes. Um... But there's also a lot of great people in that cypher that just do a lot of great work. You know what I'm saying? That you don't see behind, that are behind the scenes, Mm. you know? Um, But man, this is, uh, I've really enjoyed this, bro. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Nah, man. Thank you. Great conversation. This was, I I can't tell you how long, first of all, I can't tell you how long I wanted to do this. I'm real thankful that Ben Baller put us together. Oh, he did. And um, so shout out to
0: Ben. Ben Baller did the chain.
2: Yeah, and Ben Baller did the dominoes, which I fucking needed to buy today. Pizza? Um,
0: huh? Pizza? Or?
2: No, he did uh, he gold dominoes. Up, oh, wow. Today, he did a gold domino set.
0: We have a Ben Baller grill. I also have a Ben Baller fridge at my home.
2: Oh, the little mini fridge. Mm. you lucky. I, I just in, got I these from Supreme. Shout out to my man, West. These are new Supreme boots that ain't even out yet. That's my drip.
0: Hell Rell took some of my weed. I just want to throw that out
2: there. Just, you know, you don't, one thing you'll never have to worry about is me taking any of your weed. There we go. That's one bonus of <laughs> That's the reason
0: That's all the reason I need to stay close by search. Facto. Facto. Mm-hmm. I like that. I'm going to start running with that as well.
2: Please, yo, please, shout out to my man Troy Ave from Brooklyn who let me run with it. So now you're in the next one. Facto, not Capo. Oh, yeah.
0: That is when I think about Facto, I think about him. That's a good yeah. point, yeah.
2: Troy Ave was also a great partner. I had a a wine company. Did it with him. Um, Birthday Cake Wines. Shout out Troy Ave. Wrote wrote him a lovely check. Fire.
0: Search. Appreciate you, man.
2: Nah, Adam, man. I I, I appreciate you. I appreciate the effort and the time you put into your craft. And uh, my condolences on the cat. No, he's not dead yet. No, but but, you know.
0: You got a little time left on
2: him. Hey, I'm just saying it now because who knows when this runs. And, um, and just thank you for letting me, you know, promote what we've got going on, man. I appreciate you. No problem. All, hey, all I know,
0: we're going to make some fire, rest in peace, Tony Cat merch. You got to make the best out of this opportunity. I'm, I'm going to definitely. I'm a bad situation.
2: Two, I need a 2X and a hoodie.
0: Oh, yeah. We got to print it on tall tees so we can look like dudes in L.A. in like 2005. Yeah. yeah.
2: Damn, Laura's doing the crip walk in honor of it and the whole She shit. does that? What is that? Yo, that was crazy right there. I felt it, though. I felt the energy. Yeah. Like, I felt the energy right there. She's fucking flipping the roll 60 right there. Mm-hmm. It's fucking energy Bro, right there. A French dude pulled up and did the
0: podcast the other day, and she speaks French, and like, it
2: bon voyage?"
0: They started hitting each other with hella French back and forth.
2: Oh, okay. Gotcha.
0: It freaked me out. I was like, oh, my I God. I just asked
2: how, how was her trip in French, and she didn't oh. respond.
0: She's a very private person. Very private French speaker. <laughs> <laughs> Search, I appreciate
2: you, man. Nah, bro. Thank you. Thank you so much, brother.
0: MC Search. No Jumper. Coolest podcast in the world. Check us out on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Skype. Skype. No, we're not on Skype. We're not on Clubhouse either. Patreon, though, $25 tier is on the screen. Appreciate y'all. Like, comment, and subscribe. Nojumper.com if you want to support. Go cut yourself a kendama, etc. Facto.
2: Absolutely. Facto, not capo.